Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Richard, that was the Academy Award-winning song, We May Never Love Like This Again, by Maureen McGovern from the 1974 motion picture, The Towering Inferno. And that's appropriate because of all the disasters happening around the world every day. In this very special episode, we're going to report on two of them. The scope is so large, the threat so immediate, that we'll be joined by correspondents in the field who may interrupt from time to time with breaking news. Richard and everyone, I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.WordPress.com. Welcome to the 76th episode meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I will call it to order. And Rich, why don't you tell us what two disasters slash 70s disaster films are we going to discuss today? I bet Towering Inferno is one of them. I bet you it might be. No big shock and surprise. We're talking about The Towering Inferno today. And then another one that I was really wanting to to revisit, and for funny reasons, is that it was for free on Pluto TV. And it just kind of kept calling out to me. And I'd be going there and I'd be seeing, there it is, Meteor. I was like, we got to talk about Meteor from 1979. And when I went to go watch it, they had dropped it from their on-demand. I'll talk about that later. There was a bit of a hoop, a couple of hoops to go through to watch that. But I do want to give a shout out and give steer people away from one possible way to watch it that actually is, is not the way to go because of an issue. And we'll talk about that later. But Meteor, 1979, Mr. Sean Connery. I don't do a Sean Connery impersonation. Uh, Let's just give a a shout out right out of the gate. What a wig he was wearing in that film. We'll talk about that later. That late 70s feathered look for for Sean Connery was not quite the look I was expecting. I had forgotten that that he had a, a different look for this film. At least he's not rocking the ponytail look from Zardoz. And thankfully, he's got a few more clothes on in this one. <laughs> yes. And just as big picture, I will add that Towering Inferno was what many would consider the peak of the 70s disaster genre. And Meteor was, you uh, don't want to say a low point, although some people might think that, but it was definitely the genre was on the way out when Meteor, it was uh, like uh, a little too late. If you um, think about 1979 was also the same year we got Concord Airport 79, which was the end of that particular uh, series of films. There were still disaster films continue to be made today. In fact, if you do a search for anything from the asylum, the asylum continues to crank them out with great regularity. If somebody makes a movie, like I always laughed when Transformers came out, then there was Transmorphers from the asylum. And I didn't think the asylum was still around. Apparently, I guess they still are. And 
I know they've got a whole channel to themselves on Pluto TV. Let's get into our old business. We have a stacked show this time. Roll call of new members. Richard, we have 18 new members. I think this is a record. So we do want to officially welcome everyone. I think we've caught most everybody on the Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. But we also like to welcome verbally. We'll take turns reciting these names. You want to start off and welcome Chris Jones, Stephen Bronizuski, Jack Herman, Jesse Jackson, Chris Connolly, Richard Cooper, Harry Woodbury, Tony Ladati, Norman Mountford, Tony Patoko, Scott Watson, Evangelos Athanasopoulos. It's understood that <laughs> pronunciations may vary. <laughs> Stephen or Stephen Bartos? Terry Southard. Robert Gatton. Brian Lauderdale. Tommy Ray. And Travis Trantham. Welcome one and all. You beat me to it, and that's how I know to welcome someone, because I see that you've welcomed them. And I always say, welcome. I always thought, well, that's Dracula, Bella Lugosi, saying, welcome. That's not what he says. I saw a clip of that. I bid you welcome. Did you think that's what that was from, Richard? I think that that's the parody, right? Because you always say, welcome, or I want to suck your blood. The Hotel Transylvania movies, the the character always says, I don't say that, which is true. I don't think he's ever said that in a film. It's kind of like Beam Me Up Scotty. Never says that at all in the entire run of the show, but that's a catchphrase that seemingly is as caught on at some point, even though it's not real. I have a new way that I'm going to greet people, and you'll see that the next time that I greet someone. Well, now I'm intrigued. Hopefully we get a new member soon. Continuing with old business, we have a lot of feedback. One of our Facebook group members reached out about an old episode, episode 38, which was Happy Hagsploitation Holiday, something like that, Hagsploitation, Anthony Walker. He said, calling all the way back to your 38th episode, I finally got around to watching Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. While it definitely could have used some tightening in the editing room, it was very enjoyable. I commented to my girlfriend when it was over that I was struck by how enjoyable it was, considering there was only one likable character in it, Elvira the Housekeeper. Thanks, Anthony, for that opinion or capsule review of whatever happened to Baby Jane. I am glad you got around to watching it and you didn't say so, but I'll pretend because it was of our episode. A couple comments on our last episode, which was about Val Luton. Scott Pliskin commented that Rich mentioned during the episode The Secret History of Hollywood, uh, another podcast. And he says that is a great film history audio docuseries. He listened to four of the limited series under that Secret History of Hollywood brand. Warner Brothers, Universal, Alfred Hitchcock, and Val Luton. He says he really liked Leopard Man. It's an atmospheric serial killer movie with a lot of chilling moments. His top five, Luton, and I believe we asked people to let us know what their favorite movies were. In release order, Cat People, I Walk with a Zombie, Leopard Man, Seventh Victim, and Isle of the Dead. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate that participation. And then I'm not sure which movie he's referring to, but Martin Stone, Tennessee, replied, I need to give this one another watch as it always left me a little cold. But all Luton is worthwhile. Just rewatch The Seventh Victim and Curse of the Cat People on TCM over Christmas. What wonderfully unique films. 
And finally, one more from one of our new members, Chris Connolly. He starts out talking about Valut in that episode and then mentions a couple of others. Hi, guys. I'm new to the podcast and wanted to say hi and how much I am enjoying it. I had a classic horror film class a couple of decades ago at the University of North Texas, where I was introduced to the films of Val Luton. I loved the deep dive of your podcast into the studio inner workings, etc. I think my professor did a good job, but didn't have the resources back then. From her account, I pictured Val hanging out in theater lobbies with a clipboard, asking people to circle movie titles they would go see based on the title alone. He also listened to our podcast about the Omen trilogy. He loved it as well. I have some time off during the holidays, so I intend to listen to more while I work on my honey-do list. Thank you very much, Chris. That was nice. And we're glad you joined the Facebook group page and hope you enjoy more episodes. Yeah, thank you one and all for that uh, fantastic feedback. We love to hear from you. And then we just have a couple little quick verbal feedbacks that are from our correspondents. You know, we don't just pick people willy-nilly. It's a a loose sort of application approval process. And I think after you hear these introductions, you will see why we chose them to participate in the program. First up, we have Steve Turek and Alistair Hughes from the Hammerama podcast. Hi, Rich. Hi, Jeff. I hope you guys are having a good episode so far and doing your disaster films. I want to thank Rich and Jeff for putting out great content that they've been doing for many, many years now. It's been a show that I think both of us have been enjoying. We love their deep dives into either an artist or director or into the films and showing their passion and love for the horror genre. That's that's absolutely right. And I think it's something that I don't say enough. The podcast that you guys produce is a huge inspiration. Speaking for myself, I love the rapport that you have with each other. It's something that I try to emulate with with Steve to to some extent. Your depth of research and just your unique views on the films that you discuss are, are always hugely entertaining. Uh, the only thing that I wish is that you could come out more regularly, but you, you can't have everything, can you? And and you put a lot of effort into your episodes, unlike uh, <clears throat> unlike Steve and I. Anyway, <clears throat> back to you, Steve. Well, I, I can take definitely take the blame for not putting as much editing effort in, but your your <laughs> is by far the best of the four of us that do editing for the Diecast Movie Show podcast plus Hammerama. Hammerama is done specifically always by you, and the editing for this one is going to be because we're leaving as feedback is going to be minimalistic. <laughs> um, I'll be doing, it. and of course Jeff will fix whatever he wants to. In post. <laughs> the editing of this episode is going to be the equivalent of um, flaming rafters falling from the ceiling and windows blowing out and water pipes bursting. It's going to be fun. Well, thank you, Alistair and, and Steve. I, you know, I'm almost at a loss for words a little bit when we hear praise because I'm always on to Jeff about tooting his own horn when it comes to his writing and his books, but Collectively, we don't do that a lot with our podcast. We get together because we enjoy talking about films and we just happen to record and we throw the episodes out there and, and we've been getting uh, over the course of what now, this is our sixth anniversary of the show this month. And if you think of how we've grown over the last six years, it's just been kind of a slow and steady climb where we continue to get new listeners. And we have, a, you know, I think our own little rabid 
fan base of followers who really enjoy what we do. It is really nice to hear, though, from our friends who do not have to call and leave voicemails and, and say kind words, but they do. And it means a lot. And I think with this, doing this podcast, to me, the ability to do it with Jeff, dear friend, and have just get together every month and do the podcast, that in itself is reward enough. But then to have friends like Steve and Alistair, and I know we're going to hear from Jonathan in a moment. These are friends who we've made because of the podcast community and, and the monster community. And those friendships and the fact that they listen to our show and enjoy it far outweigh any other accolades, rewards that we could, you know, awards we could potentially get. Just the ability to to have this circle of friends because of what we do means all the world and is, to me, a perfect way to start off this new year. Thank you, gentlemen, for your kind words. That means absolutely the world to me. Yeah, and you guys know it really affected me, and I was kind of verbose that day with thanking you and explaining a lot of what Richard just beautifully summarized. So I won't repeat that, but just appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. So thank you very much. And now we will introduce our final correspondent, Jonathan Angarola, not from any podcast, but our go-to man for anything kaiju and disaster film. Here is Jonathan. Hey, Jeff and Rich, it's Jonathan, just calling in in anticipation of your disaster series, part two, I believe. It's nice, we're getting this in the winter. Usually I associate all this with summer movies for some reason, but it's nice that you're dropping an episode like this in the middle of winter here. Keep up the good work. Always love the context that you guys give for these films and the background and kind of feel like you guys always enrich our viewing experience when it comes to not only these upcoming but all the films that you guys cover keep up the awesome awesome work well thank you jonathan for offering up your thoughts i know that it's always fun to hear what uh, disaster films you're watching during the summer and uh, to share our thoughts with you and and, uh, always good to hear what you're what you're watching and as jeff said you're our kaiju expert we love having you at the drive-in for the last three years I wouldn't be surprised if there's some big monsters and and Jonathan in the future this summer again as well. It wouldn't be a summer at the drive-in without some big monster destroying Tokyo. So now you see all you have to do is shower praise upon us and we will select you to be a correspondent for our episode. (laughs) Just kidding, of course. We accept gifts as well. No. Do also want to give a shout out to my brother and my mom. They're probably on the road somewhere right now driving. And I hope you're enjoying this episode. This is a good one. Mom, Jay, do you remember seeing Towering Inferno in Enid when it came out in the 70s? We're going to talk about it. And I might mention that again. Hi, Jeff's mom. Hi, Jeff's brother. I think I did this last time, too. I got to give the shout out to Hi, Carla, because she might be listening out there as well. Does Carla listen? She does sometimes, yeah. I did not mention our YouTube channel. Yes, it still exists. We had some issues last month and did not end up with a episode of the video companion that most people could see. If you were in a certain place, maybe Evangelos over in Greece was able to see it. (laughs) I'm not sure, but somewhere there were copyright restrictions and I do apologize, but we do intend to be back up on YouTube on our YouTube channel this month with this 
particular episode companion. Heaven forbid we're promoting their movie and we're always telling people where they can go find the movie. We're not making a penny. <laughs> if we are, I'm, I'm not just, you know, cornering the market on that. I haven't seen anything. All right. So you can participate in all of this wonderful feedback. You can call, which is what Jonathan did. He left a voicemail, 616-649-2582. Richard, what's our reminder for that? 616-649-CLUB. Very deep, very sexy. You could do what Steve and Alistair did. You can pre-record it and email it to us at classichorse.club at gmail.com. That's also where you could send written feedback uh, as well as our aforementioned Facebook group page. So lots of ways to get involved, to participate in our shows. All right, Richard, let's get into it. I'm excited. We will take a quick break and come back and get started with our first movie, The Towering Inferno. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman race against time as one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. The Towering Inferno. It's out of control. It's coming your way. Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox present Irwin Allen's production of The Towering Inferno. Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Susan Blakely, Richard Chamberlain, Jennifer Jones, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughn, and Robert Wagner, The Towering Inferno. Those people are going to die up there. Something's not done. Watch me out of here. So you can stop worrying about me. What about me down there worrying about you? I'll never let you go anywhere without me again. I'll be back with the whole fire department. The Towering Inferno. Set me down on the scenic elevator. Now, the producer of the Poseidon Adventure brings you more spectacle, more stars, more suspense than you've ever seen in one motion picture. Steve McQueen is the fire chief. Paul Newman is the architect. Step by step, floor by floor, this is a race against time to save hundreds of people trapped in a night of blazing suspense as the world's tallest building becomes the towering inferno. Inferno. Inside the glass tower, the world's largest building, an electrical short has ignited a fire on the 81st floor. Now, architect Doug Roberts has discovered shortcuts taken by the builder and the electrical subcontractor, who happens to be his son-in-law. The fire is spreading trapping attendees of the dedication party in the promenade room on the 135th floor. Meanwhile, Chief O'Halloran of the San Francisco Fire Department is struggling to gain control of this towering inferno. The 
The Towering Inferno was released on December 16th, 1974. That was its Los Angeles premiere. It was based on two books. I'm sure we're going to talk about that, but those are The Tower by Richard Martin Stern and The Glass Inferno by Thomas N. Scorsia and Frank M. Robinson. The screenplay was written by Sterling Siliphant, and the film was directed by John Gillerman. Also worth mentioning, for various reasons that we'll learn, producer Irwin Allen. Richard, do you have any memories of your first time viewing of The Towering Inferno? You know, I, I'm sure this was pr- on television at some point, and I, I might have seen a clip of it or two, but I really feel my my first proper viewing of the film, and I'm not sure how proper this is, would, would be the late 80s when I worked at Duncan's Movie Magic uh, in 1988. When you worked at the main store, the owner would handpick the movies that we played on the big screen TV. Uh, when we were at the smaller satellite stores, we could play whatever we wanted. But in the main store, we had uh, a list of films, and they were always older movies. And I have a vivid memory of the the Towering Inferno VHS clamshell cover with the, the green and black stripes or whatever on it. And that would have been my first time watching the Towering Inferno was, was sitting. And I, I have a memory of maybe it being a slower day because... There were parts of the movie that I definitely remembered, then probably other parts there was a customer coming in or something. And I don't think, honestly, since then, I have seen this. So in a lot of ways, this is almost my first real, real proper viewing without having to help customers or anything. I'm always aware of it, though, and I would see clips here and there. But from beginning to end, without interruption, this was my first time. Wow, I did not realize that. Well, as I mentioned in my shout out to my brother and mom, I do not, i be honest, don't remember my first time viewing, but I'm very well aware of seeing this in Enid, Oklahoma growing up. It would have been a family thing. I, I can remember, I don't know about my brother. He was quite a bit younger, but definitely my parents and I, and this was in the middle of the, the golden age of the 70s disaster film. And I would have seen it several times in the theater and then... It's been a long time since I've seen it. In fact, uh, I watched it on a special edition DVD that came out in 2005, uh, unwrapped this week for the first time. So I know it's been at least probably 20 years since I've seen it. And memory has played some some tricks on me with it, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But as evidence of sort of this phenomenon, I do have a piece of vintage memorabilia here from September of... 1975. It's a cover date, so you can't really be sure. But this is Mad Magazine with their spoof of Towering Inferno. Would have bought it off the newsstand. I bought Mad Magazine at the time. Their spoof was called The Towering Sterno. Yeah, Mort Drucker was the artist, and it was written by Dick DeBartolo. So I'll try to maybe include some clips of that or images of that in our show notes. But I just thought that was fun. I still have it. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. In Britain, as far as I remember, it was almost a sort of Christmas New Year tradition, which, of course, is the time that we find ourselves recording this, to show disaster movies on TV around the festive season. Now, don't ask me why, but is that a thing that you do in the States as well? 
I don't really recall disaster movies being shown around like the holidays or whatever. Hmm. I did read that the Tower and Inferno for a long time in Sweden was shown was it New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve or something like that? It was so yeah. So it must be a European thing. Too. Yeah, must be. I guess, I guess to get the if you're ending the year or starting the year off or whatever, I guess you could say that you know, well, look, we did better than this. <laughs> <laughs> cheers, everyone. Yep, cheers. But I didn't. I didn't know what was it. Always the same movie, or was it a variety of movies that they alternate from? Yeah, I just seem to recall it was a variety of movies, and um, in fact. You may not be so familiar with this, Steve, or maybe you are. When Doctor Who came back and they had their regular Christmas specials for one year, they made an effort to actually do their version of a, of a disaster movie just because showing that kind of movie around Christmas time is so ingrained in, in Britain. But it really is a kind of bizarre tradition when you think about it, isn't it? In fact, it kind of struck me that the whole genre is a little bit bizarre. I, I actually have to tell you about my first experience of this film, Steve, when it came out around the movies, in, in the movies, even I was too young, but my parents went, I think with friends, they kind of made a made an evening of it. It was a big night out for them. Although even then I was really interested, most interested in horror and science fiction. The Towering Inferno was sort of presented as a spectacle and it pressed those same buttons that you know, big budget science fiction does and that you're going to see spectacle and explosions and things on the screen that, you know, you might normally associate with a science fiction epic. So I was really, really keen to know as much about this film as possible, which I was too young to see. So I distinctly remember the following morning, my mother sitting down with me and basically describing the whole film to me in quite a lot of detail. My lasting memory is of her describing the scene where Robert Wagner succumbs to the flames. She did this wonderful job of describing how he has this heroic effort to um, save them, but in, in the end, the flames consume him. And that's that's always stayed with me. It was not until well into the 2000s, actually, that I finally saw the film for myself. I first experienced it through um, my mother telling me about it. Not quite as a bedtime story, but um, even so, it was it was one of those nice bonding moments that I'll always remember. I remember when I saw the movie when I was a lad on TV, I always remember how Robert Wagner went out. You know, he ran out of the thing, put the towel over his mm. head, oh, I I used to run the, the hundred yard dash in 10 seconds. And then I don't think he makes it one second, maybe two <laughs> seconds out before he's engulfed in flames. But yet he keeps on moving, you know, he does. Finally, he does. And finally dies. He tried the best he could, but it was like no shot at all. But the time exactly. they waited, it was fully engulfed and they were, they were gone. And by the time the firefighters got to the floor, they were on, they would have been, Regardless, as we saw later, they would have both been perished anyway. He just, yeah. but at least he went out like a boss. <laughs> he, he he certainly did go out like a boss. I'm just going to have a very slight diversion here. The um, next Hammer film that we're doing, Steve, I uh, watched it recently, and I was amazed to see that there's almost a Burning Man stunt scene in that. So it was quite weird to have just watched the Towering Inferno and then to see Hammer doing their own version of someone in flames. 
moving through a scene. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. So, Richard, your official first time viewing, what did you think of Towering Inferno? Well, such a small cast. I mean, (laughs) you don't have much to work with here. Uh, (laughs) No, I, I... So let me let me explain my my the way I watched this had me concerned a little bit. I did not watch it on on a DVD or Blu-ray. I almost bought the Blu-ray, but I was trying to go cheap. And it's a harder film to find in the streaming world. But I watched it on a service called Movie Land TV. It's it's an app that's out there on on Roku. Movie Land used to be an app, and I prior to that it was known as Popcorn. And let me just say that. I'm I'm about 99.9% sure this is not a legit site because the sheer amount of movies they have from so many other studios really makes me question its legitimacy. They've got Mary Poppins on this site, folks, and Disney is not going to let that go. So as I started watching this, it was really kind of digitally compressed at the very beginning, which was a little concerning. But then it cleared up a little bit. Ultimately, it was DVD quality at best, but enjoyable enough that it didn't deter from my viewing. I I do wish that, and I would like to see this again, maybe on the Blu-ray, that is going to have the best picture possible. Again, it's a 1974 movie, so you're not going to see true high definition like today's films, but... I think that there's probably a better print out there. That said, if you're looking for a cheap copy of it, go to Movie Land, check it out. It's still there. The ads are minimal at best. I mean, they pop up occasionally. It wasn't distracting like it was in some other services, uh, less so than you get like on Tubi. And Tubi doesn't bother me that much because it's free. It's a long movie. I was going to ask on Movie Land, was it the full 245? It was. Yeah, it okay. was the full. That was another thing that I was trying to make sure the timing that I wasn't going to get a condensed version or an edited version. The only thing I noticed was that periodically it almost seemed like it was going from like one file on the server to another. It kind of had like this three to five second timing out, but then it would like rejoin right away. I had forgotten it was so long and I didn't feel it. It seemed like the right length. Did you think it drug or anything? You know, surprisingly not. For a a two-hour and 45-minute movie, I was concerned a little bit. But gosh, I mean, the star of the movie, I mean, it gets right into it, which is one thing I noticed in comparison to, like, Earthquake, where you had a a fairly long buildup before you get to to the disaster uh, in Earthquake. And then, of course, the disaster in Earthquake is really the the bread and butter of that whole movie right and then you get to the the aftermath um and there was a lot of of plot with the characters in earthquake mm-hmm. you have less plot you know you've certainly got storylines right but clearly the they're secondary to the disaster and the disaster again you're pretty much getting into it almost from the get go the build up is is significantly less but the disaster aspect is is a lot more uh, stretched out in the Towering Inferno, whereas again, Earthquake is that one big scene, right? And then, other than that, like I said, you've got the long buildup and the aftermath. The Towering Inferno really it, it's the disaster is is the bulk of the film, with subplots and storylines inter, intermingled. But 
you never really get sidetracked too far from the from the fire. So I thought it was a, an interesting way to do it and, and, and helped make the two hour and 45 minute runtime for me move along at a, at a quicker pace. It never really seemed to drag. That's my main takeaway really from this because your memory of 70s disaster movies is always the characters and the soap opera and their stories. And this is that's painted with a very light brush in this. In fact, I was about at the point, and I don't know, maybe it was about the middle because by the time everything is happening and the, the people are trapped and they're aware that they're trapped, there's a little pause. And that's where we kind of go around and Fred Astaire and Jennifer Jones have a conversation. We learn about him. They do that with some of the characters. But that's an odd placement of that. That's in the middle of all the action. It's very brief and it's certainly not the focus. So if you think of, you mentioned Earthquake, and I'm going to compare this more to Poseidon Adventure. It was Irwin Allen also. Even that was the characters. It's if you like that or not, you know, which do you prefer, the action or some character development? I personally enjoy Poseidon Adventure. I'm curious now, having seen this, to go back and see. I don't know that they spent a lot of time developing the characters or if just during the action they became more tangible or more because you know you just know by the time Shelley Winters goes on her swim you know everything about them and it's more heartbreaking because of what happens because you do know her however that happened Towering Inferno doesn't have that and the other thing you mentioned focusing on action and I mentioned in my little brief introduction director was John Gillerman however Irwin Allen himself directed the action sequences So think about how much of this movie is action. (laughs) I mean, it's just kind of odd. It seems like either Irwin Allen should have been the director or a co-director, because I would guess he probably directed more scenes than John Gillerman. Probably. I want to, I'm thinking of it real quick, the, your comment about the, the character development and Poseidon adventure. And I think if I recall correctly, it was piecemeal you know, as, as kind of the, the movie were on, because there was moments, right, where action, and then there's kind of a down moment, and then you get a few lines of dialogue, or something else is said, where they kind of fleshed out the characters to the point that by the time you, you're getting, which other characters are alive, by the time you get towards the climax of the film, you, you know the characters enough. You have, you weren't given, you know, an overabundance of, of character development, you were given just enough to feel something when the character dies, you know, when one of the characters dies with this film, it's like you get to find out enough what you need to know about the characters to feel something that when something happens to them or to boo them when they come on screen. And I'm thinking about you, Richard Chamberlain. (laughs) Yes. The villain of the piece, my alternate ego from the multiverse you know enough, right? From this very first, you know about the background that he's he's possibly done something, and then as soon as you see his very first scene when he walks in in the room, and the way he's acting towards his wife and just his nonchalant and oh, got to get a drink. You know, a one dimensional perhaps, but you know what you need to know about him. It's like, yeah, this guy, he he drinks too much, he philanders, and he cut corners. And doesn't give a damn about any of it. You don't need to know anything more about him. Yeah, but I don't think there's a character that I 
cared. Well, and I don't know. I'm thinking now, you know, I can't even really remember who died other than, spoiler alert, Richard Chamberlain. What I was going to say was I don't think anyone dies that have the same emotional effect on me as when Shelley Winters dies. No, no, I would agree. And so being told all that we need to know, I agree. But here's an example. So like Fred Astaire, and maybe I just missed it, but the whole thing about him being a con man and all that, I didn't really realize that. I mean, I know he pays the taxi cab driver with coins and he's got a suitcase full of stock certificates. But unless I was just naive, I thought he was a successful businessman. I didn't get the, well, I must have because I'm talking about it, but I just think it's so subtle. It's not really clear. They don't do anything to show the flip side that he is a successful, rich stockbroker versus he's a con man. Time that that's made clear is just when she says, "Oh, I realize that's what you are." Okay. Well, I'm glad she does because I didn't. <laughs> I, I picked up that there was something with him though, and just some of, but certain way, certain things that he said something or certain ways that he acted. I was like, something's not a hundred percent right about this guy. There was something, you know. Now I wasn't, I didn't necessarily pick up the the scam part of it until it was a bit more laid out, but. I knew there was something with him that was just slightly off kilter. You know, I do think, though, when you said that there's no death that quite matches Shelley Winters, I think there is one that comes close, and that's the the death of Lissolette in the elevator. When you think about, you know, her character and she's, you know, trying to, you know, saving the kids and... I liked the, I'm trying to think of the right word here, you know, the, I don't know, the, the on-screen repertoire between her and Fred Astaire, there, there was, uh, they had some good chemistry. That's why I was trying to think of chemistry. The impact of her death comes in kind of two phases. There's the, the initial, you know, death and you're like, kind of, it's out there, you know, it comes in out of the clear blue in a way. You kind of see it coming. But when it does, you're like, man, I was kind of hoping she'd make it to the end, right? And then you've got Fred Astaire, who is at the end when he's looking for her and she's not there. That's that that two-pronged kind of double whammy that they give you there because the look that he has on his face kind of says it all. You know, it's like he's a con man and he found somebody he didn't want to con and found somebody that liked him as well and then that was taken away and then you know it's like well here have a cat uh just kind of like that moment just the way he he handled that and and the look on his face i think played a part in him getting uh nominated for best supporting actor which is kind of weird when you think about how many other people were in this film it's like how did fred astaire get picked out of everybody. And I'm kind of thinking that scene might have, have been something that the Academy saw and the way he acted. I mean, he did win the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. And I think that enhances her death. With Shelley Winters, you didn't need that two-pronged. It was like just that, that you know, the death itself was enough. Here, he needed that extra little you know, oomph at the end from Fred Astaire to to make it more of an impact for me. I get that. And I appreciate that. I 
did not have those same feelings. And I'll be honest, and I, I know Alistair and Rich both loved Jennifer Jones in this. I don't know. Maybe I was distracted by her helmet of hair, <laughs> you know, from the 70s. She didn't. I don't know. I just kept looking at her and thinking, oh, how old was she when she made this? And wow, that's a lot of hair. She didn't affect me. And I, I'm obviously in the minority about that. I think there was just a certain level to her performance at times. So you look at her career, right? She only did 26 films, but she was a four-time Oscar nominee, uh, including for Love is a Many Splendor Thing. And then she, of course, um, had the win uh, for Song of Bernadette in 43, admittedly quite a few years earlier in her career. But for me, anyway, she brought something to that performance. When you've got such an ensemble cast, you might only have a scene or two where you get the opportunity to shine. It's true. Admittedly, nine times out of 10, you're not going to shine because unless you're the main character, unless you're the Charlton Heston, she had a couple of scenes for me that, that it worked. But again, I think that her death was amplified by Fred Astaire. So she, her death wasn't necessarily her performance. I would give the death of Shelley Winters' character to Shelley Winters and how that played out. Yeah, that's a good point. And I will say about Fred Astaire that he had some really interesting reactions sort of towards the end where they're tied down and they're going to pour the water through and there would be an explosion behind him. The way he reacted to that, and I did watch a behind-the-scenes thing, that sort of really happened. I mean, it was happening in, around them. So maybe it was very natural, but I thought those reactions, do you know, do you remember yeah. like an explosion in the way he would just turn and look? I mean, it was very realistic. A, a typical film for Fred Astaire. I mean, if you if you do a lot of action films, you're going to have to act your way through those moments nine times out of 10 because you're used to the explosions and stuff like that. You just kind of, okay, well, now I'm supposed to look like this and this. It's that the real reaction, like you said, from somebody like Fred Astaire who doesn't do the action films. And at this point in his career, I don't think he was acting a lot at this point. He was older. His dance career was behind him. He was taking on some different roles in this latter part of his life. When you look at genre-related, obviously Ghost Story, which was his last film. I also remember him from Battlestar Galactica, the random episode that he did where he played, I think he played a con man in that one too. Fred Astaire spent most of his career being a dancer and being in kind of lighthearted dance comedies. You know, I watch him every year in, in Holiday Inn and the Fred Astaire you see there is so different than what you see here. And of course, you're also looking at 30 years later and there's no dance routines, but there's moments where he is able to shine and kind of bring that whimsical charm that he had through this film. He probably stood out when it comes to nominees and probably his age. The Academy obviously does a lot of things behind the scenes and they sometimes nominees. There's a reason that somebody gets a nomination because, hey, this could be a feel good moment because Fred Astaire, you know, getting up there in years, this might be his last opportunity we know that's how they play it. And, you know, ultimately he didn't get the Oscar, but he did get the Golden Globe. And I think that's pretty cool. Don't want to beat a dead horse, but one more comment about this cast. And back to Poseidon Adventure, it, I don't know, it's a necessary smaller cast, but they are all together through the course of the movie, giving opportunities for them to interact and us to learn more about them. 
Here they're kind of spread out or in different parts of the building for a lot of it. And we talk about Jennifer Jones, how it's kind of subtle and picking up on Fred Astaire being a con man. Then you look at Richard Chamberlain. We know so much more about him. It feels to me like, because while I said no death affected me like Shelley Winters in Beside Adventure, there was a death that I was standing up and cheering for. And that, that was Richard Chamberlain. It's a mixed bag. I think on one hand, it's probably an even treatment, but yet some characters stood out more than others for me. It's a hard thing to manage in that big a cast. And I think we agree a, a different approach than focusing so much on the action. Yeah. Plus other disaster movies. I mean, I'm, grossly generalizing here but generally have an event and then it's surviving afterwards or trying to escape this the event is going from start to finish so it it is a different sort of perspective and then i'll just sum all of this up by saying our memory of what 70s disaster movies are like this one doesn't necessarily fit the pattern that i remember so i was a little taken aback when watching it that oh this isn't exactly how I remember it. I'm surprised, actually, that this one has not been remade by as a big budget because this just screams an opportunity to get an ensemble cast of modern stars. And with high definition and with CGI, they could make the fire look amazing. And visually, it could be a stunning film. And that's probably the one aspect about this movie is that fire sequences were good. They didn't necessarily blow me away because I guess the overall quality in the time period. What you can do was was a bit limited. I think the water sequence at the end was probably more dramatic than some of the fire sequences in the movie. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Essentially, what you do is you get a whole group of A-lister actors, you put them in their best evening wear, and then you burn them to death. I mean, this is what people did for entertainment in the 1970s? Well, you got to remember, back in the 1970s, they used to do those celebrity roasts, so it only makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) It all suddenly makes sense, Steve. Well done. We, We just need to see these things through your unique skewed lens and then suddenly suddenly everything falls into place doesn't it or falls out of windows in in this case yes or or, or find flooding on floors on top mm-hmm. of sky scrapers but steve what's that smell there's a really overpowering smell when i watch this movie it's like every aftershave in the world stirred together with cigar smoke, perspiration, and hard liquor, and then left to go off in a drawer with a crumpled issue of Playboy. I think I think it's the reek of slightly toxic masculinity. It's a widespread outbreak of testosterone poisoning, and almost everyone in this film has near-lethal doses. It's overpowering, but thank goodness the women are safe because they're all secretaries and housewives quarantined behind phones and typewriters away from super spreader events like, you know, important meetings. 
blossoming bromances between expensive leading men and, you know, plot developments. What do you think about that, Steve? Well, I think I think you're right about a lot of the female cast is that way, for the exception of two. My favorite one of the cast, especially the females, she might be my favorite, second favorite of the whole movie, is Jennifer Jones. Oh, Jennifer Jones is great, isn't she? Oh, she is wonderful as the independent woman who Fred Astaire's character is trying to woo and con, so -hmm. to speak. And she's in on the game. She's intelligent. She's smart. She's caring. She's heroic. She saves the children, basically. She does a whole bunch of different things. She restores his own belief in himself as well. Exactly. It's just a lovely character. The camera just loves her. I mean, mm-hmm. every, every scene she's in, she steals. When you look back at her, because I was not unfamiliar with Jane, Jennifer Jones' back history. But yeah. when I look at she won one Oscar, was nominated for, I think, five other Oscars during her career. So you're talking about somebody of an extremely good caliber mm-hmm. of ability. And she just has a great role, owns it. And what can you say? It's just, I, I just enjoy her role. But otherwise, well, Faye Dunaway also as the managing editor. She's not a secretary. She was going to be mm-hmm. the managing editor. But you're right. The rest of them are pretty much, well, really, <laughs> really, there's only two main characters, you know, when you break it down. <laughs> it's a beautiful bromance. It got my heart pumping, just smelling that really high testosterone in in the air. I mean, I do realize that I'm being a little bit unfair, but my goodness, men were men in those days. I was just really relieved to see characters like Faye Dunaway's character and Jennifer Jones's character. As you say, I can't help but poke fun at uh, just how men and masculinity were almost invariably depicted in the 1970s. And here we have a whole cast of them. We've got both Roberts. We've got Steve and Paul with their beautiful relationship. And we've got Rich Chamberlain's evil twin as the villain. What did you think of him? Well, I got to say, I like our Richard Chamberlain much better than the Richard Chamberlain playing Simmons in the movie. Obviously, prior to all of his miniseries um, success... (laughs) that he would later have and his comeuppance was well deserved as as mm. always looking out for himself and so on at least at least he did wait i have to give him some credit he at least waited till all the women and children were safe before he tried to make his power play yeah well that's something and now back to your regularly scheduled program speaking of all the action and and the scenes is there a action sequence that's maybe your favorite scene from this movie does anything stand out i have a couple I think the I'd go to the water, you know, releasing the water sequence at the end for some of the reasons you just talked about. I mean, the reactions from some of the cast, you're tying yourself to a pole and but you're in a precarious position. The building's on fire and now you're you're having to survive a flood and being trapped up in this high building. And that's a really well done sequence, I think. For 1974, it would have been stunning. And here we are almost 50 years later. And it that sequence holds up for me more than some of the fire sequences, simply because I'm so used to high definition and, and, and that kind of stuff where this movie 
lacks a little bit makes up for it with the the big climax of the film. What about you? One scene that I think visually was my favorite, and that is the the I guess it's his secretary that Robert Wagner is sleeping with. And I'm not familiar with this actress, Susan Flannery, but she plays his secretary and they're having an affair. And well, let me just stop you, sir. How how dare you not know? Oh goodness. She was on Dallas. Oh really? She had an affair with JR in one of the seasons. Susan Flannery who actually won a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer, didn't have a huge theatrical career. She had done some TV work with Irwin Allen. Um, She had done the Time Tunnel, um, actually, in the 60s. But she was most known for uh, her uh, season on on Dallas, being a lover of J.R. Ewing, but also Bold and the Beautiful. She entered the soap opera world by 1,500 episodes of Bold and the Beautiful or something crazy like that. She was one of the main characters on that show. I didn't recognize Susan Flannery at first. And then finally, one of her last scenes, I'm like, she's young and and rather attractive in this film. Well, my favorite scene was her death. They are trapped in their love nest, which this building is spectacular. I don't remember in this case. I know in one of them for sure, like out of the office, you could go into a a bedroom. (laughs) Convenient. They were in one of the bedrooms in this big building and Robert Wagner tries to escape and she's in the bedroom with the door shut and fire is raging outside. She opens the door and flames are coming at her. So she has the idea of breaking the window, which was a fatal mistake because then the air sucked the fire in. She caught on fire and took a dive out the window. That I thought was a sad but spectacular death scene that was probably my favorite of the scenes like that and then my other two favorite scenes are probably the maybe the best known scenes you mentioned it earlier when jennifer jones dies they decide they can they can't use any elevators inside because of the fire but they can use the lovely scenic elevator that is on the outside of the building they can load 12 people at a time and take them down Well, of course, there's an explosion and hangs by a cable. And so they do a whole set piece of a helicopter retrieving it and lowering it down. I thought that was terrific. But I think I like a little bit more to get more people to escape. They string a a line between an adjacent building and rig a chair and a pulley system. Lots of ingenuity there. They can pull people across one at a time. Well, this is about the time Richard Chamberlain is checking his number and he's got to wait too long and, and he knows he's not going to make it. So he decides to jump on that chair when someone else is going across and then other people do that. And then that is when he falls to his death. The only sad thing about that, it was not a fiery death. He just fell to a normal death. <laughs> he did deserve. He did deserve. He did deserve that. He yeah, did. He's, he, I think when, it, honestly... When you think of disaster films, he ranks up there as probably one of the biggest villains because he played a part in in the disaster itself. I mean, you think of like Poseidon Adventure or Earthquake, that's nature, you know, happening there for the most part. There's things that happen along the way and villains who are trying to cut ahead and save themselves. But this one, you know, had had he and to a lesser degree, William Holden's character of Jim Duncan not cut the corners, we wouldn't have had a towering inferno. Yeah, I wanted to ask you what you felt about his responsibility in comparison to William Holden. And you may have just said it, but he was employed by William Holden 
And just the fact that it's his son-in-law gives you the idea of that's why he was hired. I mean, he could have known nothing about electricity and had been hired because he was a son-in-law. But William Holden knows that he had to come in under budget. He had to save money. And he, they may have been even paying off people. I don't know. So he was, uh, what's it called when you're aware of something going on? You're not directly responsible, but you're involved in it because you're aware of it. I think he was he was like aware of it. But I don't think the severity or the ramifications had really connected with him. And I think they had with with Richard Chamberlain. I think he knew exactly because he showed no remorse. It was kind of like, you know, well, how do you think you're going to save money? I did this. Yeah. And he never, you know, so I think Simmons, Richard Chamberlain's character was more responsible than William Holden's character, Jim Duncan. Duncan, I think, was responsible, but he was ignorant to the ramifications of cutting corners. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. What was your favorite scene or one of your favorite scenes? I have to admit that I wasn't that impressed with the towering inferno. And, you know, maybe I was in a cynical mood. In some ways to me, it felt a little bit mean spirited. I know that these mega budget disaster movies were hugely popular in the 1970s. And in some ways, the towering inferno was the peak. I've got much fonder memories of the Poseidon adventure, for, for example. So if I was to pick a favorite scene, although I've made fun of them, I think that despite what might have been going on in the background between these two gentlemen, any scene between Paul Newman and Steve McQueen for me just really, really sang and showed me that um, although although I've mocked them slightly, these guys are famous actors for a very, very good reason, and that is that they know their stuff. So when these two characters are on screen, everything just gets lifted. And I love the interplay between them. I love the tension, which gradually mellows into a mutual respect. So without picking a specific scene, I would just have to say really any interaction between the two main actors would have been my my favorite parts. How, how about you? I'm not going to argue today. I, I enjoy their, their rapport with each other, especially when they first were meeting and they're going over the floor plans and that kind of stuff. And you can just tell the fire chief, Stephen Queen's character, really has some disgust for this, mm. being, this whole building thing being done. But he realizes that it's not exactly the architect Paul Newman's character's fault because yeah. of the, what was what was going on, and that and they they learn to work with each other during this. I don't know how long it takes place in like real time, but in film time, just a couple hour period. I mean, it might yeah. be something. It's always hard to tell what a film is. It really an hour? Is it four hours? I mean, who knows? In within this night, we'll leave it mm -hmm. at that. Yeah, and yeah. My favorite scenes, as I already probably stated, with is the stuff of Jennifer Jones. I don't know. Mm. I really enjoyed. She's teaching art to the children or to the young child, the girl. Yeah. And yeah. it works from there and how it has this whole progression because she's the one who knows that they weren't going to the party. They were going to be in their room. Her first instinct was to go down there and get them. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. 
I feel like both of these movies have an elephant in the room and I don't want to make any commentary about it. It was what it was and people were different then. They would evolve to do bad things later, but OJ Simpson is in this. And my just comment about him as a character is that he was kind of squandered. He had quite a bit of screen time at, at the beginning. He was the security officer in this building. He recognized the fire. He went and verified there was a fire. All of this. He then goes to different rooms to make sure people are getting out. And he's got a fairly active part. He opens Jennifer Jones's door and we've already been introduced to her cat. And he takes the cat. We don't see him again until the very end of the movie when, like you mentioned, he hands the cat to Fred Astaire. There was literally a point where I said, wait a minute, where's O.J. Simpson? What is he doing right now? Then that happens, I think, with some of these disaster flicks, especially with something like this, where there's action happening in, in kind of like multiple areas. He was squandered a little bit. At this point in time, you know, he was still kind of a fledgling actor. He was a glorified football player, becomes actor. I have to say his billing comes right after Jennifer Jones and he's billed before Robert Vaughn and Robert Wagner. To me, if I was Robert Vaughn, I would have been a little upset that OJ got billing over me because he was a well-established actor by that point. His role wasn't necessarily pivotal. What do you mean it was pivotal? He saved the cat. <laughs> All right. So what you got about behind the scenes? A lot of little, little interesting things here. So the movie is based on two novels, which is interesting. And, and I actually did not know that until I was doing my research. So you've got The Tower, written by Richard Martin Stern, and then The Glass Inferno, written by Thomas Scorcia and Frank Robinson. Frank Robinson also wrote the novel The Power that that movie was based on. When the studios started looking at getting the rights to the film, Warner Brothers bought the rights to The Tower, 20th Century Fox bought the rights to The Glass Inferno. Rather than compete with each other, which, you know, is interesting because these studios are always willing to compete with each other. Hello, Armageddon and Deep Impact. We'll talk about you later. The studios decided to combine their efforts. And this actually ended up being the first time the two major film studios entered into a joint production. The end result was you get The Towering Inferno. Of course, both books would be reissued paperbacks and would highlight the fact that this is based in part on, you know, the movie The Towering Inferno is based in part on this book. A lot of cross-promotion going on. The uh, studios shared in the profits. So 20th Century Fox got the U.S. box office with Warner Brothers getting the rest of the world. And I don't know what came out on top, but... Ultimately, they they shared profits. A lot of awards that this film was nominated by, which I think is going to be interesting compared to Meteor <laughs> and its lack of awards. But Towering Inferno won three Oscars. It won Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and the Best Music or Song. Also nominated for Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Best Sound, and best music for the original dramatic score, which we should mention, was by John Williams. 
I didn't necessarily think that 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 John Williams score stood out in this one. Maybe it's just me. It just it was there. He wasn't quite to where he was going to be a few years later with that little film called Star Wars, and that elevated his status. Of course, let's just acknowledge John Williams is still with us and is continuing to make music. He is scoring the next Indiana Jones film and has recently come out and said he has no intention of retiring anytime soon. Roderick Thorpe was inspired in a dream after watching The Towering Inferno to write his novel Nothing Lasts Forever in 1979, which ended up being the book that Die Hard was based on in 1988. Huh. So think about that, the Die Hard Towering Inferno connection. So does that make Towering Inferno <laughs> a Christmas movie? <laughs> Christmas movie. <laughs> we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. One of the things we talk about regularly in our episodes, not every episode, but in a lot of them, is the poster art. Mm-hmm. And yes. you being an artist extraordinaire, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm an artist ordinaire, actually, but thank you. <laughs> well, a humble, extraordinary artist. <laughs> I'll stick with that. What do you right. think of the Tower and Inferno poster? Because I don't think Rich and Jeff are going to talk about it. So that way we can have something a little different than what they probably talked about. Of course, no, my luck. They will discuss the posters. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, it was the poster which excited me. Uh, that story I told you about me being a being a young lad. It was, you know, the poster was about the only part of this film that I got to see back then, and I just thought it was the most exciting, spectacular thing that I'd ever seen. Um, I'm a I'm a massive fan of the, even though it's unfashionable, of the 1976 King Kong. And the more I watched that movie and appreciated, I realized that really what it was, was a disaster movie with a giant gorilla in it. And this is reflected in the poster art as well. Now, unfortunately, I don't have access to the artist's name. I don't know if it was the same artist or not, but there's a particular style to the artwork part of these posters where it's usually a building or it's a, I don't know, a ship. It's something on a huge scale, but it's painted in such a way that detail is suggested rather than painstakingly shown. So if you were to look at the Towering Inferno poster at that center image, it looks like you're looking at an enormous building. But if you look more closely, the brushstrokes are actually quite minimal, but they're done so skillfully that you believe you're seeing more detail in the image than you actually are. And that's something which is very, very difficult to master. But I remember really admiring it with the 76 King Kong poster and all the other wonderful artwork which came with that movie. But what strikes me, I'm actually looking at a book which has the posters for Airport, Earthquake, The Poseidon Adventure, The Swarm, and The Towering Inferno, all on the same spread. And what I really identify most with these movies is that you always had the cast, usually in relatively small squares, either going across the bottom of the poster or, in the case of Airport, down the side. Whenever I see that on a poster, I automatically associate that with being a disaster movie. Strangely enough, I can think of one instance where this happens, where it's not a disaster movie in the conventional sense, and that is Star Trek, the motion picture. 
One of the versions of that poster, I think it might have been the pre-production poster, the teaser poster, has the cast in those boxes in disaster movie style, which I really appreciated. I'm sure Richard appreciates that we have a Star Trek connection for him. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, they went in a different direction when the actual poster came out. I like the poster, Steve, because it was that that really, really excited me way back then and made me want to ask my mum to tell me all about the film. What do you think about it? I want to go into something that was brought up in the different trivia things you read, and that is, of course, the billing between the two leads. Mm. And this is a contentious thing. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with it. Steve McQueen went to be listed first, and Paul Newman's camp chose the high road. Mm-hmm. literally <laughs> yes and that's why i wanted i think at the poster depending on how you read this poster or look at this poster is dependent on who you see filled first and i noticed something that never dawned on me till now it's not only the words of the names but the pictures mm-hmm. the fire chief is a little bit lower than the architect and when you're going down i mean most people are the first thing that's going to draw your attention is the tower so mm-hmm. i'm thinking first saw this i'm sure as you did you're drawn to that middle pictures now it depends Mm -hmm. where you go left or go right (laughs) i'd happen to be the type that go right because the wording starts first on the on the high part on the right side so for me paul newman's character would be the first picture i would see and so on and then i'll go to the left and see steve mcqueen yes and i think it's an interesting thing how the artists had to work within these parameters of the two Mm -hmm. different camps you know with the two different stars and the egos and and things like that i don't know i think which whose ego was worse off than the others i don't know i mean we'll never know they're both long gone i do know that william holden wanted to be the first one listed and he was basically was like told no (laughs) (laughs) You got to look at the time and space. You're well beyond those years when you used to be the the first one on the list. Mm -hmm. I just find it kind of interesting. And then going back to what you started off with, with your um, earlier statement, I find it interesting that Faye Dunaway's character is listed only as the girlfriend. And then you got the wife, the widow. Uh. And of course, they're all, I mean, other ones are listed as the builder, the con man, and so on. That's a really, really astute observation, Steve. And when I look at the names at the top of the poster, it looks like it's been letricetted by a (laughs) 12-year-old. I mean, well, I'm being a little bit unfair. Obviously, because of the constraints that you've described, the names are all at different levels, which should look horrible. But I think the person who designed this poster had enough skill to actually somehow make that work. And it does, despite the fact that no line of text is in line with any other for the reason that you've just described. And you spotting that uh, tiny difference between the level of the portrait pictures up to the side of the tower. That's that's really, really good observation. Well done. So just having a look at this poster just speaks volumes about what must have been going on in the background between actors and agents and goodness knows what else. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. So a lot has been said over the years regards to the rivalry between 
Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. And so unfortunately, not a lot was was publicly said, but there was definitely a rivalry going on because there was both actors were were kind of at their peak at this point in production. Like they had to have the the same amount of dialogue to the point that when the script first came out, I think it was Paul Newman had 12 more words or some ridiculous number than Steve McQueen. And they had to re go back and redo the script to match the fact that they had the same amount of dialogue. First, let me preface by saying in this deluxe DVD edition, there was a whole disc of extra features, pretty light. They focused on things like this rivalry, which to be honest, I don't care much about. I'm sure it happened, but that's just something you play up on to get the drama, to build publicity. And, you know, I don't really know how, Serious it is. But I did get one little tidbit that I thought was interesting, and that is exactly what you said. It was 12 sentences for them to have the lines equal. So the writer wrote more for him, and I believe it was in that final scene. And then Steve McQueen still wasn't happy, and they said, why? You've got just the same number of of sentences. It's because Paul Newman got to act more with his eyes during that scene. So that acting was outweighing the words and I don't I don't recall what they did to resolve it like I said I didn't really care I I suppose it's true I think there's probably a measure of truth in there and I guess the reason I'm skeptical is because they do show a lot of behind the scenes and those guys are laughing and getting along and putting their arm around each other maybe it's publicity and they knew they were being filmed so maybe that was acting as well but they looked like they were having a good time and didn't look like the rivalry went anything beyond their agents Nonetheless, I mean, there is a quote from Paul Newman who did say that for the first time he fell for the for the numbers. It, he did this turkey for a million and 10 percent of the gross. But he ultimately doesn't sound like he was fond of the film and didn't like the deal that he got. And who knows? Hollywood is full of those infamous rivalries. And a lot of times, as you said, that's fueled by the agents or by the media machine behind it. Faye Dunaway had apparently kind of a a big head around this time. She was also kind of at the peak of her early career, and she was showing up to set late, reportedly. I saw this on IMDb, but I did some research, and there was a couple of other sites, so I don't know. Did they get it from IMDb? Did IMDb get it from there? Is there any truth to this? Who knows? But supposedly, William Holden confronted her because it was affecting some of his scenes, and finally, he confronted her. According to IMDb, he pushed her up against a wall, and she was on time for the next 30 days. Fred Astaire wanted to write a song. He wanted to write the song for the movie, but everyone thought, no, it's going to be too old-fashioned. Fred Astaire is in the past. So we got Maureen McGovern, again, doing a song for a disaster flick. Interestingly enough, The Morning After from Poseidon Adventure, it won the Oscar. It hit number one on the charts. So, yes, he got the Oscar again for We May Never Love This Way Again. However, it was not a big hit on the charts. It stalled at number 83. To peak at number 83, you're talking like 545s were bought in the middle of nowhere. 83, you're not even getting played on radio much if it's 83. So, And that is not a good song. I mean, it's I not. love The Morning After. We've talked about that when we what i wanted to do on just mentioning the cast because there's other there's cast members we hadn't mentioned both of these movies have long cast so i'm not going to go through a lot of their credits i'm going to try to pull out 
maybe a genre film that they did uh, or another disaster flick. So we've got Steve McQueen playing Chief O'Halloran. Of course, big movies, Bullet, Great Escape, many other films. But, of course, The Blob, uh, a classic if there ever was one. Paul Newman played Doug Roberts, best known for The Hustler, actually did do a uh, a sci-fi film, if you've ever seen it. It's a movie from 79 called Quintet. It's about a second ice age. William Holden, who played Jim Duncan, uh, another disaster flick, When Time Ran Out, which is a movie that I'm actually interested in. I had forgotten about that until I did my research. We talked about him back when we did our Omen episode. He was in Damien Omen 2. Faye Dunaway, who played Susan. Uh, of course, Bonnie and Clyde was a big film around this time period. Chinatown has contributed to her big head. Many people will remember her for Mommy Dearest. Genre fans will remember her for Supergirl. And that's all we need to say about that. Susan Blakely played the character of Patty. Twilight Zone appearance in the 80s version of that show, and she was also in Concord Airport 79. We must talk about Richard Chamberlain. What a fine actor and and such a wonderful name. No, he was in quite a few uh, memorable things. Thornburg, Shogun, uh, Alan Quartermain films, which I always forget he did those. He was in an episode of Thriller back in the day when he was doing Dr. Kildare. And another film that's high on my list of disaster films is The Swarm. He is in that film. I want to see that as well. Robert Vaughn played Senator Parker, best known for The Man from Uncle in the 60s, and Superman 3. I would say Superman 3. I'd rather remember Faye Dunaway than... Well, you know, I think Superman 3 is a notch above Supergirl, but that's not saying much, I, you know. By the way, Robert Vaughn, when he first appeared, I thought he was going to be his typical smarmy kind of bad guy character. He turned out to be all right. He was he a did. good guy, I thought right? the same thing. I thought for sure yeah. was gonna, and he, he wasn't. Robert Wagner as Dan Bigelow had I, I, his death I, absolutely is one of the more memorable ones too, running in fire. I mean, stupid. You know, I'm going to go running through and yeah, he makes it's like that wet towel is a magical cloak that will protect him from the flames or something. <laughs> Austin Powers movies, heart to heart. But he did a movie called Madam Sin with Betty Davis in the 70s, an action adventure spy thriller type thing. Now, does he play the titular character Madam Sin or would that be Betty Davis? I believe that's Betty Davis. That'd be a whole oh, okay. other movie if he played that. OK, Gregory Sierra played Carlos, the bartender. Apes fans will certainly know that he was in Beneath the Planet of the Apes uh, as one of the mutants. And uh, the first of many Star Trek references on this show, he was in an episode of uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He was also in the movie Vampires. How about Dabney Coleman as Deputy Chief Number One? Fans will remember him from War Games, the movie Bad Ronald. He was in that. He was in an episode of The Outer Limits. Paul Comey played the character of Tim. Paul Comey was in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. He was also in Howard the Duck. And he played, I believe it was Lieutenant Stiles in the classic Star Trek episode, Balance of Terror. He was the annoying asshole navigator who ends up getting saved by Spock at the end of that episode. And last but not least, and I'm, I know I'm missing a few. There's just so many people in this. This isn't who I think it is. I will be adding. Well, I'm going with Mike Lookinland. Yes. Okay. Bobby Brady. <laughs> Bobby Brady plays Philip Albright. Now, I did not know his horror credits. He's got some horror credits. Really? Yes. Not as an actor, though. 
He was the first assistant camera on Halloween 5, Revenge of Michael Myers, and a 95 movie called Deadly Invasion, The Killer Bee Nightmare. He was also the second assistant camera on uh, 1994's The Stand, in which he had a cameo appearance as a sentry in that in that. Hmm. I did not know. Granted, not a huge horror cred, but nonetheless worth mentioning. Just a couple of other little tidbits. So you mentioned Sterling Siliphant as the uh, screenwriter. Uh, he did Village of the Damned as well, something that we covered in a previous episode. And he also was involved in One Time Ran Out. And uh, director uh, John uh, Gillerman, 41 film credits. Tarzan, we mention that occasionally on here. Tarzan's Greatest Adventure and Tarzan Goes to India. He also did King Kong and King Kong Lives, which we covered way back in episode number one. What a way to bring it full circle. You said this was our sixth anniversary, episode number one, King Kong, John Gillerman. That was unintentional. I think we kind of beat around the bush, but just overall, and we don't need to explain why, but how much did we like it? Oh, yeah, we should talk about that. <laughs> I enjoyed this. I enjoyed it a lot. I, this is a movie that I would gladly revisit. I would want to see it on Blu-ray, and the Blu-ray's cheap, so I think that the next time I, I watch this, I would take the extra effort and catch it on Blu-ray. I think it's a fun film. I I love seeing a lot of familiar faces um, in these movies, and even in bit parts and stuff. Do I think it's the best of the disaster genre i don't know it it would rank pretty high i think do i like this better than earthquake i would say there's a part of me that likes it better than earthquake i i would rank this high yes it's a solid movie there's no debate that it's a classic a classic 70s disaster film it just did not live up to my memory and i'm not saying it's bad it's still very good And it's interesting you said that it's fun. I don't actually know that I'd use that word. And we could just end there if you want, because we can circle back to that when we talk about Meteor, because to me, Meteor was fun. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. For me, I enjoyed the movie, I think, a lot better than you. Yes, Uh, I think so. I enjoyed the um, action. Once it gets moving, Mm -hmm. it has the little drama pieces, but something like what? going to happen next like the you know yep. the next shoe is going to drop and mm-hmm. you can just see that with steve mcqueen's character when he has to go do the end scene and he's, he's almost like you're kidding we, like what else could go wrong it's almost like what else could happen here that he has to go do this is this mm-hmm. character sold that well and it's the same thing for the audience so it is to me especially for 1974 a good movie with an adrenaline rush goes through Yes, it is like about three hours long. It could be a little shorter in some ways, but I really like the effects, especially for back then and everything else. I think it's a great Irwin Allen disaster movie. Yeah, yeah. No, for for um, what it is, it, it is certainly uh, spectacular entertainment, and it's always great to see actors of that caliber in the same film with each other. I just didn't enjoy it as much as I I was hoping to this time around, but um, that's just me. I kind of feel like Towering Inferno is the better film. I don't think you'll get too much argument from people about that. Is it true that there was a rivalry between Paul Newman and Steve McQueen? I don't know if that's actually true. 
I have heard that, or maybe it's between their entourages. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but great cast, star-studded cast, as usual, as you have with these films. Very fun. Probably set the standard pretty high for a lot of the disaster films of this era. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. I may not have thought the movie was, quote, fun, but talking about it sure was. And we're only halfway there because we have another movie. I know. Want to give a special moment of thanks to our correspondents in the field. We've heard their thoughts on the first disaster, The Towering Inferno. Thank you to Steve and Alistair and Jonathan. And we will be hearing more from them in the second film, Meteor from 1979. But first, we must take a look at what was happening in the world of music and film and TV in 1979. I was 11 years old going on 12 in 1979. We won't talk about Jeff's age because we know he's he's a moment or two older. And I can't say much about that because he's Carla's age. Even in this segment, that's how good I am. We're going to have a fun reference. And, I, and if you don't know what it is, it won't, it'll make sense to you when we get to it. But first, the top songs for the week of October 20th, 1979. If you didn't want to see The Towering Inferno and you wanted to stay home and listen to Casey Kasem's American Top 40, these are the songs you heard. Now, I want to mention first that there was a song debuting on the charts at number 85. And unlike Marine McGovern's song, which didn't get any higher, 83, this song would actually go on to become a big number one hit. It's a, I don't have guilty favorites, but it would be a guilty pleasures, but it would be one, I suppose. Escape the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes. I kind of love that song. It really is a bad song when you think about it. It's about two people cheating on each other, but nonetheless... October 20th, that song's starting its climb. So, top 10, number 10, and we'll see if you remember all of these songs. There is one song out of this top 10 that I was not familiar with, and it, I think it's kind of interesting. So, number 10, we have Still by the Commodores, the first of two appearances by Lionel Richie and the Commodores in the top 10. Number nine, we had Heartache Tonight by the Eagles. Number eight, My Sharona by The Knack. Number seven, kind of hanging on to those sappy 1970s tunes, Sad Eyes by Robert John. The song at number six, I was not really familiar with. I had to listen to it, and I think I've heard it once or twice. Dim All the Lights by Donna Summer. Oh, yeah. It's a song, though, that doesn't get played a lot now. When And this is an inter interesting thing about music is that there's just some songs that get played ad nauseum on all the, you know, Pandora, whatever, and other songs have been forgotten. And that's a Donna Summer song that doesn't get played. There's a lot of other Donna Summer songs that get played. That one, I, I just never hear that come up on various 70s or 80s channels that I listen to. Hmm. I wonder why I'm so familiar with it. They must have played it a lot at the time, and they probably did if it was a top 10 song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So number five, I'll Never Love This Way Again by Dionne Warwick. Number four, our second appearance by the Commodores with their hit Ceylon. Number three, kind of this, this precursor of what was coming in the 80s, we had Pop Music by M. Uh, number two, not quite to his thriller stage yet, but we have Don't Stop Till You Get Enough by Michael Jackson. The number one song will surprise you. 
and I, this may be a song you might not remember, but if you hear it, you'll say, oh yeah, I've heard that because it's a song that often got played a lot of times as like a, a soundtrack to imagery, you know, commercials, what have you. Rise by Herb Albert. It's a, it's a catchy tune. There have only been 32 songs to hit number one, 32 instrumental songs to hit number one on the Hot 100 since 1955. This was Herb Albert's second time. It was actually his biggest hit. When you think of Herb Albert, 60s, early 70s was his sweet period. And then there's this song in 1979. So now that we leave the Top 40 podcast, what was playing on TV on Saturday night, October 20th, 1979? If you didn't want to go to the theaters, well, it's the fall TV season. So I found this interesting. There's going to be several TV shows on here. You're not going to remember it all because they last. And the problem with old TV shows is that unless they they last at least a couple seasons, if the show gets canceled after 13 episodes, it disappeared. It, it's not something you can put in syndication. And it just disappears and, and is never heard from again. On ABC, the evening started off with The Ropers. The spinoff series from Three's Company lasted a couple of seasons. And then a, a sitcom called Detective School. I don't remember Detective School at all. It ran 13 episodes about a night school for detectives. James Gregory, who played General Ursus from Beneath the Planet of the Apes. He was uh, the inspector from Barney Miller. Yep, he was in this for 13 episodes. Also, Randolph Mantooth, who was big in emergency, doing a little bit of comedy. And yep, this came and went rather quickly. The other two shows of the night, bet you know what they are. The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. I think we know what those are. On CBS, it was the Celebrity Challenge of the Sexes. Those sporting events of the celebrities were popular back in the day. Uh, and then an episode of a show called Paris, a crime drama starring James Earl Jones. 13 episodes and done, and it hasn't been seen by anybody since. Last but not least, on NBC, Chips kicked off the evening, followed by BJ and the Bear and a TV show called A Man Called Sloan. Twelve episodes and done. This had Robert Conrad playing a secret agent. Last but not least, if you actually went to the theater in 1979, uh, Meteor was not number one at the box office. Shock, surprise. It lost out to the movie 10, starring Dudley Moore and Bo Derek. It was the first of an eventual six weeks at number one for the movie 10. It lost for one week on November 14th to the movie And Justice for All with Al Pacino. On December 12th, another movie took the number one spot, and that movie was Star Trek The Motion Picture. And that's what was happening in the world of TV and music and movies. Very good. Thank you for that. Let's take cover and talk about Meteor. Space. Timeless. Infinite. Eternal. For countless millennia, the stars and planets traveled their silent paths in perfect harmony. 
It was called Orpheus. The meteor. Its power is greater than all the hydrogen bombs. Its speed is greater than any rocket ever conceived. Its force can shatter continents. Its mass can level mountain ranges. It cannot think. It cannot reason. It cannot change its course. And it's going to strike the Earth in six days. That meteor is five miles wide and it's definitely gonna hit us! It's coming apart in a million pieces! Your government, in collaboration with the best scientific brains at its disposal, developed the project to deal with this emergency. Attitude correction complete. Situation nominal. Anything go wrong? Once the rockets have been launched, they switch over to their own internal decision-making systems. And if these systems perform perfectly, well then, there's no problem. But if there's a malfunction, what are the odds? Your guess is as good as mine. speed of 30,000 miles per hour and there is no place on earth to hide. Inside an underground command center here in New York City, scientists from the world's two superpowers, the United States and Russia, have joined forces to prevent the asteroid Orpheus from colliding with Earth. Now, their plan is to use space weaponry that each country originally denied having. It seems solid. Solid plan. However, there may be splinters of the meteor that create disasters such as avalanches and tidal waves as they breach our atmosphere. Meteor, as Richard mentioned, was released on October 19th, 1979. It was written by the team of Stanley Mann and Edmund H. North. Edmund H. North is credited for the story. Directed by Ronald Neem. Richard, what did you think of Meteor? 
This was not a first-time viewing for me. I saw this back in the day on HBO, and I was drawn to it because it was kind of science fiction, and it had Sean Connery. Sean Connery was James Bond, so James Bond in a science fiction film. I remember reading about Meteor in Starlog magazine, and so that hyped it up. Starlog was the source for science fiction movies back in the day, and then eventually saw it on HBO. I haven't seen it since, honestly. I really enjoyed this movie for as cheesy and outlandish as it could be at times. It, to me, was a lot of fun. Not as big of an all-star cast, but a lot of familiar faces. And there's certainly some B-level faces that I I remember or recognize. And there's going to be multiple Star Trek references as we go down the list Sean Connery with his wonderful feathered wig that he was wearing. I didn't think it looked bad. To me, it kind of stood out because I think I had seen some other pictures like right before watching the movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he's got that late 1970s feathered look, which, hey, I had that going on into the early, early 80s. And he pulled it off better than I did. No, not bad. A lot of science facts that were not very plausible. Some of the science stuff is off. It wasn't quite as outlandish as, say, like Deep Impact, which we'll talk about, was heavily inspired by this movie. There was absolutely some moments in Deep Impact where you had to kind of throw science out the window. This one tried to keep it a bit more level set, as much as you could when you're talking about a giant asteroid headed towards Earth and wreaking havoc and mayhem. I've never really sort of thought of meter as a disaster movie of course it is but to me it's it's more of sci-fi and that's kind of how it was treated when it was released so starlog like you mentioned and by the way and i know we're going to talk about this interesting name for the article it's down to the wire as the fx crew races to meet the film's release date (laughs) but it was also uh, in cine fantastique and these are all oh such good memories of these magazines that were out at the time. Cine Fantastique, it was featured in issue number nine. Famous Monsters of Filmland, it was on the cover of number 160. Do you remember Future Life? It sprung off from Starlog. It was first Future, then they changed it to Future Life. Vaguely. Number 15, of course, talked about Starlog 29. And also these movies, and I mostly starting with Star Wars, but I don't know, maybe going back to even King Kong. There are always like this package of of merchandise you could expect with a big budget sci-fi movie. You know, there was the comics adaptation. There was the behind the scenes magazine release, the making of book. You know, there were just, you know, certain the Starlog, the Fangoria, whatever famous monsters. Those movie magazines that those, those thick movie magazines, they would always precede the movie. So you'd always get your sneak peek at images and sometimes spoiler stuff would be in those. So you had to be careful. Yeah. You weren't getting information on the internet. Sometimes picking up a magazine, you're like, I'd never heard of Meteor before. It was your first time hearing about this film. And you would read every word of that article 10, 20 times. You would pick up that magazine every afternoon after school and look at those same pictures and just absorb it and try to figure out how you were going to get to go to the movies. And another thing I didn't mention, and Meteor, to my knowledge, did not have one, is the poster magazine. And I loved those. So Meteor did have uh, Warren, the publisher that puts out 
Famous Monsters had the official magazine of Meteor, and there was a book, The Meteor Scrapbook, by Bernhardt J. Herwood, and a foreword by Isaac Asimov. This, to me, is the icing on the cake. This is the treasure amongst all of these, and this is the Marvel Comics super special comic adaptation. How's the comic adaptation? Did you revisit the comic adaptation? I have not. I need to read these. Because I know the fun thing about those is that they would make those well in advance of the release of the film and oftentimes would go off the original script. And if there was last minute scene deletions, that happened with Star Trek The Motion Picture. I can say the likenesses are not very much like the actors there's a couple panels of the sean connery character that sort of evokes sean connery natalie wood in this is a redhead but it was written by ralph macchio and there's a comics ralph macchio that's yeah, not yeah karate kid drawn by gene colon oh wow inked and painted by tom palmer letterer john costanza and the editor was jim shooter Fun, fun production. But the the point of all this is that there was a little hype around this. And of course, I always fell into the hype. I don't remember the specifics of seeing it the first time, but I did not like it. I thought it was boring. We will talk about something that continues to be annoying in it. But there's a happy ending because I absolutely loved this viewing of it. I just had so much fun. I laughed. I smiled. I was able to easily swallow the pill of the nonsensical situation. And here's the thing. We're going to talk a lot about probably budget and cheap and, you know, how some of the effects look. Okay. The meteor hurtling through space. There are 16 shots in the movie of the meteor tumbling through space. It'd be a deadly drinking game. but. The point is, I remembered that. That is what I remembered. I equated that with being boring and thought this was a terrible movie. I just appreciated it this time. I just enjoyed it. I had that baggage, but I was easily able to let it go. It was just fun. I laughed. Some of the lines. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Let me get focused. My main thing I want to say is the very first thing, AIP. So American International Pictures released this. I did not remember that. And my initial thought on this watch was, oh, that might explain a lot. Now, I'm not dogging them. I love some of their movies, but they're not known for high budget. And granted, they only released it. I don't know that they were involved in the production, but that just set a mindset. And somehow knowing that at the beginning set my expectations and my expectations actually were exceeded. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. What did you think of Meteor? Obviously, you and I both have some fond remembrances of this one, because I've seen this one quite a few times. I absolutely loved Meteor. I mean, (laughs) there's almost something a little pompous about the Towering Inferno. I mean, okay, it must have cost about the equivalent of a small country back in 1974, but Meteor to me seems a lot less pretentious and cosy, (laughs) even though it's about an enormous rock about to wipe out life on Earth. I just loved the, the lower budget feeling of it. Now, 
being an, being born in Scotland, I can't help but love Sean Connery in, in anything he appears in. If you've got him on the cast, it automatically elevates the film for me. But I feel a little bit sorry for him for some of his choices. In the late 90s and the early 2000s, when huge ensemble fantasies were all the rage, he turned down The Matrix and Lord of the Rings in favour of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Although personally, I'd watch that a hundred times before having to sit through a Lord of the Rings film again. Appalling. What kind of New Zealander am I? And then in the 1970s, when megastar disaster movies were all the rage, and some of them very good, Connery waits until the very last minute and then ends up picking Meteor. As I say, naturally, he's the best thing about it. Without going into too much detail just yet, Steve, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. We are going to talk about the effects, but I'll I'll let you go now. I agree with you. I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed both movies. I enjoyed Tower Inferno a little bit more than Meteor. I think for me, you know, it's just, it just has more repeat value. Mm-hmm. But I enjoy, Sean Connery, what, what what can you say? He, he They introduce him right off the bat as captain in his sailboat in the sailboat race. The Coast Guard comes up and they say, we need you. You know, so you know the sense of urgency is already going on. But I love that little um, repertoire between him and the captain when, they, when they're dropping him off to get um, on land. And he mm-hmm. goes, would you have really you know, crossed my bow? And he goes, yes, sir. Then I would have rammed you. And you would have sunk to the bottom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just because that's the Sean Connery thing we expect. Yes. You know, the roles he plays, it's just, that's, that's the way he's going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, just, I just really, really enjoyed the movie. I also enjoyed Carl Malden, who yes. Brian Keith and Natalie Wood. I mean, all four of mm-hmm. them are right there doing great jobs. So they had four good leads I think Sean Connery by far is like the main character. And then you got those next three right mm-hmm. underneath them. Yeah. And I find it interesting that Natalie Wood, here's a little tidbit you probably didn't know from what I read. Right. Mm-hmm. She was going to be in the tower in Inferno. Mm-hmm. I think it was in the role that Faye Dunaway played. She was offered, but she was pregnant. So she couldn't do it if I read correctly. And also she said she thought that the script was stupid. Mm -hmm. And I find that kind of interesting because if you look at the two scripts and the premises, (laughs) which one would you consider a better script? Uh, You know, (laughs) that could be for a debate, but let's put it this way. One was a box office smash. One was not. Yes, well, I think we have a friendly disagreement here. I found so much more to enjoy about the Meteor script. I love the fact that not only did the United States have this missile platform, which people didn't know about, but the Russians had exactly the same thing. There was that toing and froing about no one actually wanting to admit that they had it. But in theory, I just found that so much more enjoyable. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. I think the intention was there. And, you know, if it was just a big rock tumbling, and if it was, at least it was different angles. It wasn't like the same shot every time. If it was, and if they didn't like attempt 
to show what was behind it through a hole in the meteor, that's an impressive attempt. And I think that somehow you can't fault them for trying if the result isn't great. Had they obviously not been giving a darn, that'd be a different story. I would agree. This is a movie that given a bigger budget and given maybe special effects that were a little more advanced, Meteor suffered from not being able to have some of that to their advantage in 1979. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. The effects is really <laughs> interesting because they're talking about the two different movies and what, what they were able to pull off. Meteor tried to pull off more than the budget and the technology was allowing it to do at that time. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read, which I'm sure you read too, they were not happy with the effects and they kept going to different effects places to do it. And but yep. they, they kept wasting money. So eventually they had so little money and then this is what you got. And yes, the effects for this movie. I mean, when you keep showing the meteor, if it's not really that great, you don't have to keep showing it. <laughs> it's 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 a real shame. And in fact, in an interview, apparently Sybil Danning, who was basically not even a star, suggested to the producers that they use a lump of coal as the meteor because nothing else was working. <laughs> So when you've even got a co-star suggesting how you do your effects, then maybe you're in a little bit of trouble. But it was quite weird because it's like the shift from effects, you know, Oscar effects winning Logan's Run in 1976 to the following year's Oscar effects winning film, a little thing called Star Wars. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like that quantum leap never happened. It's like the whole thing got thrown back into reverse. And then suddenly in 1979, you have sub Logan's run effects again. I don't judge movies on effects. And 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 I have to say that these were so handmade that they almost had a kind of charm about them which made me enjoy the movie even more so it didn't bother me but as i say it's like uh, it's like star wars never happened i just wish they had the money to pull off the effects the way they wanted to or if the effects house that could have done it mm. it would be interesting if this movie wasn't a box office bomb if this, let's say the movie made money yeah and you know like with some of the star trek old episodes they'll have the original version that we all saw on TV when it first aired. And then they'll have the enhanced effects version and see if that would affect people's viewing pleasure. I was just thinking exactly the same thing, Steve. And in fact, probably these days, anyone could, could do it on their, on their laptop. Personally, for me, it added to the charm. And I think that's the key word for me with Meteor. It, it was charm. And I think that's why it appealed to me so much more. The use of the uh, music, the kind of synth music they use every time they show the approaching meteors, or meteor in Meteor, is kind of cool, but they use it a lot. I guess you could, you could definitely argue that they um, overuse it. And it kind of reminds me of um, some other films, you know, the most um, glaring example is Creature from the Black Lagoon, the stinger used in that, in that film, which is great. It's iconic. 
but they use it <laughs> just a little too much. I feel like it was the same deal with the meteors, uh, the meteor approaching in um, in that film. But uh, I thought that was kind of funny, and I'm sure there are other examples of overuse of a you know musical cue or a stinger uh, in other films, but I thought that was kind of interesting. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Not only is this a full hour shorter than Towering Inferno, but I, I get with the tumbling of the meteor, they're, you know, trying to, sh it's like the ticking clock, you know, time is counting down, it's getting closer, it's supposed to create suspense. That works to an extent, but like they overplay it to where it doesn't become suspenseful. Also, each day they put a little, subtitle on Monday, Tuesday. That also gives the sense of the impending deadline. Days are varying length. Like a lot of happens in some days in other days, you know, Sean Connery and Natalie would go to lunch. <laughs> I appreciated that. And you talk about dodgy special effects. I'm not just talking about the meteor. There's like the avalanche, the tidal wave, those special effects too were dodgy and i don't know that i've ever seen an avalanche where the special effects aren't a little bit wonky i don't know if it's because it's the white color or what but there there always seems to be a little bit of outline i know for a fact because empire strikes back i remember originally because of shooting on white there were those outlines and that's something that george lucas did later was remove all those lines some of it is you know unless you're capturing a, a real avalanche you're having to like superimpose it onto yeah. scenes and the tidal wave and the avalanche sequences took a combined total of 20 days to film. And that is taking into account that they used stock footage from the 1978 movie avalanche. <laughs> it, it took a big chunk of time for them to accomplish what they did. And yes, those sequences don't quite age as well. Interestingly enough though, this being the big disaster film, those are actually two of the really the, the biggest disaster moments in the film. And they're a little uneven. The tidal wave, I thought, was interesting because you had the guy who's running and manages to go home and get his wife and the daughter and the dog. And then they go running out in the street and then, you know, well, they end up getting killed. And, and that special effect was kind of a little bit underwhelming. The avalanche sequence, I think... It was okay in some moments. In other moments, it was pretty cheesy. And so, and I don't know what was pulled from the movie Avalanche or not. And it may have just been some random shots. I, something about, I remember reading about, maybe it was the skiing sequence where there was the guys were skiing. That might have been pulled. Odd, though, that they pulled it from just the year before. So if you think about it, so if you had seen Avalanche and then you go see Meteor, you might have recognized that scene as like, those are the same skiers from the last movie. They're having a bad couple of years. The thing I like about the way they treated that was this wasn't, again, your typical disaster movie where you meet all the characters at first. It's like the, the people at the avalanche and the tidal wave. That's the first time we saw them. And granted, they could have just shown the impact them, them hitting, but they took just a minute to like very briefly latch onto a person or persons that was experiencing it. It wasn't long enough to give any emotional attachment or to be part of the plot or anything, but it was just a nice little touch. And I liked that. It made it just a hair more personal than just seeing the disaster. The Siberian man, you know, that, that moment with the Siberian family. Actor Johnny Yoon played that character. Now, Johnny Yoon, not well-known in 79, 
but he would be known for They Call Me Bruce, and they still call me Bruce. Totally different genre. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Steve, I don't know if you've ever seen the outer space epic, Battle Beyond the Stars. Most males remember a certain character, St. X-Men of the Valkyrie, played by Sybil Danning, a very statuesque German actress, I think. Well, of course, she turns up in uh, Meteor as the skier, or I think she's even referred to as the girl skier in the in the credits. So I think she had maybe has a couple of lines of dialogue, but mostly she's just in the cutaways that they go backwards and forwards to to the uh, ski resort before probably the first spectacular effect sequence, which is the avalanche. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. And the elephant in the room on this movie is, of course, the World Trade Center. Did that affect you at all? Seeing, I have a lobby card from Meteor of that, and I'm a bad person, but it was after 9-11 that I got that, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a collector's item. I'm sorry, I apologize. Should not have even admitted that. I don't know if it affects you today seeing that. This is how I take the, the World Trade Center. I will forever be taken back to that day when I see something like that, and I think of that particular morning and seeing the news and having to take my kids to a dentist appointment in the midst of this craziness going on in the world and the revelation as the morning went along of really what's going on as we beginning to understand that this is something more serious. It didn't really hit me until later on in the morning. And the moment that it hit me was when I was at work at that point, working at a bank, and there was concern because this is terrorist activity now. We know that this this is something going on. And my former boss was on a we were on a conference call. I was in you know my manager's office, and the former call center manager was in California and was in a high-rise building. And he was on the phone and he said, We've been given the order to evacuate, and there's helicopters circling the building, like they were police helicopters. We've been determined that we're a potential target. That's chilling moment. This is somebody I know, and I'm hearing this. So when I see anything from the World Trade Center, it takes me back to that day, not ever having visited New York, not ever having lived in New York. I don't have the connection to it that people who lived there did people who have seen it. And so I don't think that when I see it in a film, it has the same impact on me just seeing the imagery as it would somebody who immediately sees it and knows, well, that's no longer there. And they have a much more personal connection to it. When you start talking about 9-11, that's where the connection hits for me. I didn't get a tear in my eye or it didn't pull me out of the movie or make me have to stop. And it it's brief and you don't see the aftermath. I, I don't know. I just, and you know what else I just realized after, I don't remember this in real life, but I did read that after the towering inferno soon, there was a fire in the world trade center. Do you remember? And then here, of course, this movie has a world trade center connection. So that's another unintentional coincidence. That special effect is not bad. No, no, I don't think it is. Yeah. <laughs> this is another movie where halfway through, I think it's going to, be something that it, it's not. I realized 
since so much of the time was about stopping the threat and them in the control center and the politics, I thought, oh, well, this is different because there aren't survivors. We're not following a group of survivors. And just about then, the meteor hit New York and they're trapped in the subway. I thought, oh, okay, now, now we get what we came for. By the way, the politics, it's like USA Today politics, you know, basic. Everyone knows enough about the Cold War or Russia versus United States. I thought that was a really interesting thing to focus on. And especially when you've got Sean Connery and then we got to talk about Brian Keith. He was just terrific as the, the Russian counterpart. And the whole fact that we both have these weapons in space that are not pointed to space like they're supposed to be, but pointed at each other and not wanting to admit it. And then when they do, they want to each say they had it first. And that whole thing, it was just really funnier probably than it should be. The politics that we see is absolutely how it would play out in the real world, 100%. And unfortunately, we lived in that time period and we got to, I think, a better place in the world where Russia wasn't the bad guy, right, for a period of time. And sadly, here we are, and we're kind of history repeating itself, as it often does. This movie, that part of it has aged sadly very well. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. I just want to talk about my other most favorite thing, and that is scene-stealing Brian Keith. Oh, as the love cuddly Russian. I I absolutely loved his character. He was doing for science what Gorbachev would do for politics in a few years' time. He was a lovable, cuddly Russian, and I just loved every scene that he was in. I've got very fond memories. Um of uh I don't know if you ever saw it, Steve, the um Brian Keith show where he played um, a pediatrician, I think, on Hawaii. And for whatever reason, that program just appealed to me when I was a very, very small child, and I'd always watch it. And in the opening credits, I think there's a scene where Brian Keith is sitting on a Hawaiian beach. He's sitting on some rocks, and he's looking contemplative. And then this huge wave just breaks over the top of him, and he's left there soaking wet, just with his chin on his hand in the same kind of contemplative way. So I I, I loved Brian Keith as, as an actor from quite from quite a young age. Now, his character is really interesting. Certain sources on the internet claim that he spoke fluent Russian. Now, when you watch his performance, you could well believe that. But if you dig a little bit deeper, it's far more likely that Natalie Wood, whose parents were Russian immigrants, actually coached him in this role. I think that's a that's a much more likely explanation. But what whichever way you look at it, a really wonderful, warm character, which personally I think was missing from the Towering Inferno. I agree with you. Brian Keith steals every scene he's in. And one of my mm-hmm. favorite scenes is when the Americans are backing off and it's one thing saying, well the Russians will Something about like they weren't going to go through. I think it was um, the guy from Mission Impossible. Oh, uh, Martin Landau. Yeah. yeah. Future Oscar winning Martin Landau. (laughs) So when Martin Landau's general was saying how they're going to stop doing these things because of reasons that they didn't trust the Russians and all that stuff, 
I like how Brian Key goes right to the phone, goes mm-hmm. to his office, and gets the give me a phone, you know, and like that's the translation. And you just you don't hear a word he's saying, which would have been yes. Russian anyway. But yes. the way he was acting on the other mm-hmm. side of that glass, <laughs> and then Carl Malden's character goes in there to join him, you know, it, it was just wonderful to see that and that to me is acting that that's just owning the screen and showing that it's like we got to get this done and next thing you know you see the un they cut to that and they they admit they had this thing for the same purposes that the president henry fonda was playing said oh we have it here because we had the foresight to think about this problem it was never (laughs) aimed at the earth it was aimed away It gave Sean Connery's character real motivation. Like he had invented this thing, but never intended it to be a weapons platform. So the fact that he is so aggressive and angry, he has very, very good reason to um, be. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. So what did you think about Brian Keith? Brian Keith was was amazing in this film. I've always loved Brian Keith. As a kid, for me, the first exposure was Family Affair. You know, he doesn't have a lot of genre credits, although we'll have to mention he was in the movie World War Three, which is a film with, I believe, Rock Hudson from the, the 1980s. And he was also in Star Trek. He was in Deep Space Nine, the episode called Progress. He played the character of Mullabach. He is so convincing here. He had a certain quality to him when he acted and to know that he is legitimately speaking Russian. He knew how to speak Russian, uh, as did Natalie Wood, which I thought was interesting doing a a little bit of research on her. Her birth name was actually Natalia Zakarenko. She could speak Russian fluently. And I think that just enhances the movie just a little bit when you know that they did so well in those roles. And uh, I loved how... They didn't really do subtitles, right? When 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 they were when they were talking much, I thought it was interesting the one scene where Natalie Wood is speaking and then the other guy is speaking and it's like they're playing politics. Like, well, we're not going to trust what she's saying, so I'm going to interpret. Oh, good lord! But Brian Keith was a standout in the in this film. I thought Carl Malden, well known on television for Streets of San Francisco, he did Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. He did a movie called Dead Ringer. And I think he does a great job as Harry Sherwood in this movie. Yes. He has a quality about him, too. And he he's trying to get the point home and, and he kind of gets riled up a little bit and gets a little bit angry. He has a certain way about him that adds just a level of confidence to what he's saying and what he's portraying. And having those two actors in those respective roles elevated this movie. Surprisingly, I felt that the character of General Adlon, played by Martin Landau, I thought was too over the top at times. I love Martin Landau. Mission Impossible, Space 1999, Return of the Six Million Dollar Man, Without Warning, The Being, and of course, Best Actor for Supporting Actor for Ed Wood playing Bela Lugosi. Love Martin Landau. I don't think I've ever seen a performance of his where he is this over the top, and I felt like. Some of those moments where he's just like, especially when he storms off, he says, until I am brought back in command, I'm going to leave. It's like, (laughs) okay, well, don't let the door hit you on the ass. I mean, he goes out, you know, I loved how he did redeem his character and he came back, right? And I'm sorry, and I apologize and stuff. And then, spoiler alert, he doesn't make it to the end. 
but you at least gain a little sympathy for him. I agree 100%. And by the way, the line is don't let the door hit in your ass. It's why don't you stick a broom up my ass and I'll sweep the floor on the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many great lines in this. My favorite, yeah. though, is when they're <laughs> trapped in the subway and Brian Keith tells Sean Connery, one day you'll come to Moscow and see a clean subway. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So, I mean, those are unnecessary. And those are the kinds of things that are peppered all the way through this that really, really made me enjoy it. Fun moment, you know, where he's talking about like the Brian Key's one line of, of English dialogue that he knows, you know, I was like, learn this from the cab driver the last time I was here, you know, <laughs> F the Dodgers and then gets the baseball bat at the end. Obviously, they had to delete that line in the televised version, which then when you're watching it on TV, you have no idea of the reference of the baseball bat. It's like, mm. okay, you got a Dodgers baseball bat. Yay. It loses something without having that moment. But a funny moment, right? You know, yeah. I just thought it was well done. Like you said, there's there's some little zingers that get thrown in there. And Sean Connery always has a way, you know, delivering it's that just his style and the accent, and he just kind of throws it out there. But I didn't think he was walking through this by any means. I felt a full character there, maybe more than than was there, but I thought he was good in it. And then just real quick, circling back on Martin Landau, you're absolutely right. He, he sticks out. He's the Richard Chamberlain of Meteor. But I think the moment where he does apologize, I think is really nice. And yes. it... I mean, it didn't just let you like sort of redeem the character, but it sort of redeemed his performance <laughs> too, in a way. And it makes you actually feel a little sorry that he ends up not surviving the blast. I didn't put this together until now as I looking at my notes. You mentioned footage reused from Avalanche. Do you know if there was other footage? Because when the the splinter hits the World Trade Center and then they show explosions and buildings collapsing. Some of those buildings collapsing looked awfully generic. I think there was. There had to be. Yeah, well, there's AIP for you. May it all have been Roger Corman directing. It might have been. It might have been. Do you have a favorite scene? Is there anything that stands out? The subway sequence, I don't know if I would call it my favorite, but I was watching all that mud yeah seeing the actors caked in the mud i was thinking man that's real world stuff you're not dealing with cgi they're they're down there in the muck and i know to the extent that yeah sean connery got a respiratory infection that delayed the filming by two days because of the mud and the water carl malden got buried twice natalie wood almost got sucked into one of the the pumps so a fairly dangerous sequence to film obviously would be done probably very different today. I think that added to the realism, especially I think with the Seymour Carl Malden, I think it's like slips and falls and, and goes under. I imagine that to be a real moment that got captured on screen. I think he probably really did slip. And they're like, yeah, keep the camera rolling. This is good <laughs> stuff. You know, meanwhile, poor Carl, you know, is like gasping for breath under underneath the water. I I, I like that whole sequence. It felt in a weird way tacked on because we've been talking about this meteor mm -hmm. and the meteor is blasted. But now we've got a we've got this other thing tacked on at the end. Yet it was realistic. It, it's exactly what would have happened in the in the aftermath. And it's unexpected because, sure, they say, you know, you see the wall cracking and water's coming in fine. But I didn't really realize, hey, that's the river coming in. And yeah, they say that. And 
mud is unexpected. You expect the water. And yeah, that's tangible. That's real. What I did find unrealistic was how automatically there's the, they're not there very long before the crew finds them automatically. Oh, yes. You just have a couple rocks. Chisel, chisel. Hello, we're saving you. It's like, really? And that seemed awful quick. I agree. If they would have had that sequence go on a bit longer and more realistic, chances are there would have been maybe a loss of air. People might have died. And then that would have been kind of ending the film on a downer. So I get when you add this, you have to kind of accelerate it a little bit. If it's in the midst of a movie and you, you know, it's not the big final climax, then you probably would have stretched it out and made it a bit more realistic as it was. They kind of put themselves in a corner and they got, we got to wrap this up a little quicker. When you have your climax earlier in the movie, it is kind of hard to end the movie. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. Well, my favorite scene is weird. It's not really, I don't know if it's a scene, but it's a shot. Eventually, the meteor tumbling through space changes and it's rockets heading toward the meteor and then the meteor in space. The rockets are two different colors. I think the Russians are red, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Imagine that. And so eventually this plan is that they'll convert. They, they have to launch at earlier times to meet at the same point. But eventually they converge and they're all in one little row and get suspenseful because some start dropping out and you can only lose five or this isn't yep. going to work. As it gets closer, rapid fire, meteor rockets, meteor rockets, meteor rockets. And the last shot of the rockets is the head of one of the rockets, like United States, then Russian, then United States. It's like the same shot, the same position, but it's the different missiles. And at the end, they click back and forth, and then there's the explosion. I just thought that was a really exciting shot after such a long (laughs) buildup. Yeah, there was a long buildup to get to that. Yeah, but that was a nice payoff. I agree. I I wanted to talk for a second about the fact that at the end of the movie, it it referenced that this was inspired by the 1967 Project Icarus. I thought that was weird they put that at the end. I almost felt like that would have been something they would have put at the beginning of the film to act this it's almost like a measure of realism to the film. What Project Icarus was, it was like a student project at MIT in 1967, and it was essentially creating a contingency plan about a collision with Icarus. Uh, was it 1566 Icarus, which was this asteroid? And the project was essentially to come up with a plan to use rockets to either deflect or destroy Icarus in case that it was found to be on a collision course with Earth. I thought Icarus was the spaceship in Planet of the Apes. <laughs> well, maybe, yes, that, that's in another timeline. Oh, okay. This did not win any Oscars, it did, and it only got one nomination for Best Sound. Hmm. Interesting. Natalie Wood got a reference. This was towards the end of her of her life, unfortunately. Her last film was Brainstorm in 1983. Um, she died actually in 1981 at the age of 43. Interestingly enough, in a controversial fashion with Robert Wagner, who was in our first film. If you recall, there was a lot of question and actually still remains to this day about his potential involvement in her death. When she died, the studio actually tried to to essentially cancel the film, get the insurance money on it. But director Douglas Trumbull could not finish it without her. And we're talking about the movie Brainstorm. He couldn't finish the movie without her. 
So he actually used Lana Wood as a stand-in and did some creative editing. Doing so put him against the Hollywood system, and that ended his Hollywood career. Natalie Wood, I think, only did a couple of films between this and Brainstorm before her untimely death in 81. This movie was not a commercial success. It was actually a financial failure, which played a part in the eventual demise of AIP. Hmm. Donald Pleasance was actually in the lead for the role of the Russian and was replaced at the last minute by Brian Keith. Henry Fonda, we'll talk about the cast here in a moment, but he was the president, shot his scenes in two days. And one of the scenes he actually shot, sadly, was not in the final cut of the film. He shot a two-minute speech to the press corps about the impending meteor, and uh, that was cut. From the, from the final release. Trevor Howard played the character of Sir Michael Hughes. I thought for sure there might be a Doctor Who connection there, but no, none. Right around this time, he had done Superman the movie. Trevor Howard's a, a name that I was familiar with, but then I looked through his, his cast or his uh, credits and have to admit that nothing really overly stood out, but stuff that I was familiar with, but nothing really genre-related. We had Richard Dysart as the Secretary of Defense. A lot of films that he's known for around this time period. The Thing, Back to the Future Part 3, Prophecy, Gemini Man, Terminal Man. Most recently, people will know him from L.A. Law. He was in a lot of episodes of L.A. Law. Henry Fonda as the president. He does have some genre films, surprisingly. He's in a Hitchcock film called The Wrong Man. He was in The Swarm, which we've mentioned a few times here. He was also in Roller Coaster and Tentacles. Kind of funny. Joseph Campanella played the character of General Easton. He's the general whose son was killed in the beginning of the film. Star Trek reference. He was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, other film, uh, sci-fi related or horror related films. He was in the movie Hangar 18, as well as an episode of Night Gallery. Character of Sam Mason. He's one of the, the NASA guys that we see towards the beginning of the film. Played by actor Michael Zaslow. Star Trek reference times two on this one. He played the character of Crewman Darnell in the very first episode of Star Trek aired called The Man Trap. He's the guy that gets the hots for the salt vampire when she's looking like somebody else. And he's victim number one and wasn't even wearing a red shirt. <laughs> He also plays the character of Jordan, who also seemingly is dispatched rather easily in the second season episode, IMUD. Another Star Trek reference. And we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. I must admit, this film was a bit of a revelation for me. Who ever knew that Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez used to be married to Dr. Carol Marcus from Wrath of Khan. Did you recognize her, Steve? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure Richard Chamberlain, you know, two connections, but I'm sure Richard already covered this one. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, uh, she, she just looked instantly familiar, and it wasn't until the end credits uh, that I recognized her. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. B.B. Besh playing the character of Helen Bradley, best known as Dr. Carol Marcus, Captain Kirk's fling, and father of his child in the movie Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. She's also in stuff like Tremors and The Beast Within and The Six Million Dollar Man. 
I'll mention one other name, and then I want to go back to her real quick. So there's also a Clyde Kusatsu, plays the character of Yamashiro. He doesn't make it, and kind of a sad moment where he's like, one of Sean Connery's friends, and he gets caught up in the tidal wave and in the moment of realization where he knows he's not going to make it. A lot of credits. He's a character actor over 300 credits. But he's known to Star Trek fans as Vice Admiral Nakamura in several episodes of The Next Generation, Measure of a Man, Phantasms, and the finale, All Good Things. So I want to go back to Helen Bradley real quick. Her role serves absolutely no purpose whatsoever. We established that Paul and Helen have apparently separated or got they got a divorce. He calls. We know that she got the clothes ready for him. And Harry says, I didn't kind of didn't know you'd gotten divorced or whatever. And so at one point, the only scene that she's in the movie, he, you know, Paul calls her and just checking in. There's obviously some feelings still on her side. We don't really know what caused the breakup other than they just differences or whatever is kind of casually mentioned later on in the film. But she's trying to initiate conversation. He he mentions the kids real quick, and then he kind of ends the phone call. And that's it. She's not seen again, and she only gets a brief mention when he's trying to make some time with Tatiana. And she says, I heard you're married and are married. And then he kind of explains, nope, nothing there. And then that kind of frees Paul and Tatiana to have a potential relationship. A missed opportunity is when the world is coming to this climactic moment. I would have loved to have seen Paul get on the phone with Helen to check on his wife and kids, certainly his kids, to make sure that they're okay or whatever. They took this moment to introduce her and the fact that they've got kids, and then he kind of comes across, not in a bad way, but it's like, I wish there would have been just a scene or a mention of something about, yeah, he's got kids, and this is a possible end moment here, and he doesn't seem to show any, there's no reference to any compassion for his ex-wife and his kids. It just seemed weird that they would throw that plot point in and then totally drop it after that. Interesting. I also didn't think his relationship with the Natalie Wood character went as far as they sometimes do. It was more implied. Unless I missed it, we didn't even really see them even kiss or anything till the very end of the movie. No. I mean, and then it's like just the casual reference from Dupoff. Yeah, you know, I think you will come back in again someday. And it's like, you know, perhaps. Okay, that's it. It seemed, yeah, yeah, the, the romance between them is so underplayed. Real quick, just mention that Stanley Mann and Edmund North wrote the film. You've got Stanley Mann's credits, Conan the Destroyer. So Steve Turk should like that. Theater of Blood, which we've covered on this show before, Vincent Price and Damien Omen 2. Edmund North uh, claimed to fame the original Day the Earth Stood Still, a true bona fide sci-fi classic, Mm. as well as the movie Patton, which is uh, another big film from this time period. Ronald Neem, the director, also did The Poseidon Adventure, which we did in our It's a Disaster Part 1, did The Odessophile. He also plays a British official in this film. He has a, a, a cameo moment. I couldn't tell you which one he was. That's about all the little tidbits I've got. You know, I don't. 
want to summarize how you felt about it? I enjoyed the movie. I would gladly watch it again. I think I enjoyed it a lot more than I did the last time. I don't think it'll be another 40 years before I see it because I'd be pretty old <laughs> and I might not even know. Remember my first two viewings. It'd be like a first time viewing again. What about yourself? Well, how do you compare it to Towering Inferno just as far, strictly as far as your enjoyment? I will say that I enjoyed Meteor more. I acknowledge that Towering Inferno is a better film and is bigger in the genre. Ultimately, for all of its cheesiness and, and flaws, I actually enjoyed Meteor a little more than Towering Inferno. Exactly my feelings. I'm not going to waste words repeating. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Is there anything else you wanted to say in con conclusion, Steve? Well, I think you and I both recommend Meteor. You know, you mm. recommended you you liked it more than Tower and Inferno. I like Tower and Inferno more than this one. Yeah. Uh, would you recommend the Tower and Inferno? That we didn't get from you. I would recommend the Towering Inferno, yes. In terms of spe spectacle and in terms of its uh, of its well-earned place in movie history, yes, I would have to recommend that people see the Towering Inferno at least once. Sure. And for me. If I had to choose between the two, I'll just sum it up with a line from the movie. If mm -hmm. it's a matter of choosing, I'll take the pretty one. The tower. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on your definition of pretty, doesn't it? Either way, sounds like we both had a good time. We can only hope that Rich and Jeff did too. And I'm really looking forward to hearing their views on, on these two movies. But as ever, Steve, really, really enjoyed talking to you about them. I enjoyed talking to you also, Alistair. And it's been a blazing ball of rock coming towards <laughs> the earth. And enjoyable it's been, fun. <laughs> it's been impactful. Very impactful. <laughs> and Rich and Jeff, I hope you have a I hope the episode is great for you guys and we're looking forward to hearing what you guys turn out for the rest of the year happy new year and keep up the great work meteor also fun though a little cringy there's some definitely some cringy moments between sean connor and natalie wood but good cast you have carl malden in there as well and new york as usual getting trashed not always new york but i know new york's a popular target jeff you know i don't know if you may want to consider visiting new york uh, next month because, you know, you just never know. I feel like there's always an impending disaster. Um. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. This movie is available to buy or rent on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. I will say do not buy or rent it from Amazon Prime. I rented it and the audio is out of sync. I thought it was something on my end. I, I kept getting out and in, out and in. I should have known something was was up that when I pressed play on the movie, it started with like the, the director directed by it, like it skipped through the opening moments of the film, which was weird. And I thought that's kind of odd. And I thought, well, I've never seen this before. Why would it skip? So I had to rewind, go back to the beginning and it was out of sync. I went back in again and thought, well, maybe I just don't rewind it. Maybe that is what caused it to be weird. And no, it was still out of sync. In retrospect, looks like there were people leaving reviews going back to last year and were commenting that the movie's been out of sync for a while and Amazon simply hasn't bothered to fix it. So if you want to buy or rent it, I would suggest go to Apple TV. 
I did rent it from Apple TV. However, someone has also uploaded a copy of this to YouTube, and it is a great copy. If it's still available, you can get it for free on YouTube right now. It is available from Kino Lorber on Blu-ray. That Blu-ray is out of print. It is rather pricey at the moment. It's going for about $90. The DVD is out of print, and you can get that for quite a bit less. It's going for about $10 or less if you shop around. Well, very good. This is an episode that we're in agreement. I think we can take a break and come back for new business. What do you think? It sounds good. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hemorama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely and of Your Own Will. Part of the multi award nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of Hammer Horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Welcome back. It's time for new business and... We're not really doing a detailed listing of home video releases, but there are a few I want to just call to your attention and discuss. First of all, our friend Christopher Page at the Time Shifters and Orphan Entertainment podcast recently mentioned The Asphyx has come out on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. I have it on DVD. I've seen it before. He seemed to really be impressed with the Blu-ray package. This week, as we record, the Dunwich Horror came out from... Starts with an A. <laughs> Arrow. <laughs> Came out from Arrow Video. Just meant, I think we mentioned it last time, but I recall just really liking that. I mentioned to Richard before we started recording, I yesterday pulled the trigger on two Vinegar Syndrome releases, Karuku, Beast of the Amazon, and Flesh and Fantasy. Richard has forewarned me that I am really going to love Karuku Beast of the Amazon. So I can't wait till that arrives where I can watch it. <laughs> I am really looking forward to your thoughts on that. I think that it will probably look great. Curiosity would kill me to, to see it again. I'm just looking forward to your thoughts on it. And I'll leave it at that. All right. And the final one I want to mention is really just a question to ask if anyone has seen something called Attack of the Beast Creatures. It's originally known as Hell Island. If that rings a bell with anyone, let us know. It's come out on video about this time from AGFA. And I just want to read a couple things about it. This beloved 1980s horror vortex is fueled by outrageous gore, a sublime synthesizer score, and jaw-dropping beasties. The synopsis is survivors of a shipwreck wash up on an island and run into small, vicious creatures. Well, the catch here is that these little creatures look, well, I don't know if they are, but they look like the Zuni fetish doll from Trilogy of Terror. And if you can just imagine an island of those little things running around, it's something I got to see, if not own. It's on the border of my, am I willing to pay it or not? 
So if anyone has seen it and can help me decide, let me know. It. I don't believe it's available to watch anywhere. I would have to buy it at this point. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that there is a project from England. It's called Daytime Gothic. It is a charity fanzine for Dark Shadows. And it's actually, gosh, probably a year late in coming out. I contacted the the, the publisher, the whoever's putting this out, because he was soliciting for articles. And I proposed one and he said, well, someone's already writing about that. So I'm not in it, but it's definitely something I've been watching for to be announced. It was announced and it is being released and you can still order it. It's at 10acrefilms.com. So that's T-E-N-A-C-R-E films.com. If you're a Dark Shadows fan, this looks fantastic. And finally, I just have a couple of anniversaries I want to mention. These may be a segue into what we're talking about next or may be something you want to remember because it's going to come up again soon. But Countess Dracula was released in the UK on January 31st, 1972. And The Spiral Staircase was released in the US on February 6th, 1946. We're in sync with the universe, aren't we? Yes, we certainly are. And the universe is in sync with us. Yes. So not a lot of new business, Rich. Anything going on with you that you want to share or any thing you've seen out on the market that you've got your eyes on? I'll just mention a couple of things. I saw Mondo Macabro will be doing a another Paul Nashie film this year. I know we were getting a lot of Paul Nashie and then we've hit a drought. And they did announce that they've got one on the horizon for later this year. Not a horror title because I want to say that's almost exhausted to an extent. I, I think there's still maybe some other horror-related titles, but a lot of the bigger ones have been released. I cannot remember the name of the film, but it's coming out from Mondo later this year. It's more of a crime drama film. Also, hopefully, the Indicator Inter Santo box set will be released at the end of January with the first two Santo films, uh, Santo versus the Evil Brain and Santo versus the Infernal Men. These are the first two films, and it was supposed to come out last month and then got delayed. I've got mine on order from Powerhouse Films in the UK, but I think you can get it at multiple other places. It's a region-free. We've talked about it. As far as what's going on in my neck of the woods, nothing. It has been quiet all year long. And I realize that as we record this, it is the 14th of January, and it has been since before Christmas, since I posted anything on the blog, I have, I've gone radio silent. And one of the reasons for that is kind of behind the scenes. My computer crashed right before Christmas. It was a HP Envy computer, probably the best computer I've ever had. It was eight and a half years old and the hard drive failed. I really can't complain. Eight and a half years and I never had one problem with it. I was getting a little loud sometimes. The fans were kind of kicking in a little bit and I kind of knew in the back of my head, ah, this thing is, it's eight and a half years in computer world. That's pretty old. With it, my hard drive crashed. So, you know, I have been keeping track of all the movies that I, I watch every year since 2009, and I have lost all of those files. Uh, I couldn't share a post at the end of last year as to what I watched in 2022, because I can't, I can't tell you. All of it's gone. I have the hard drive. It's possible I could salvage some of the files. I very stupidly did not put them on an external drive. That caused me to enter the 21st century, and I am now on Letterboxd. 
Jeff has been talking about for years. So that's how I'm keeping track of films. I was not upset about my hard drive crashing. That was a good moment, actually. is like liberating in a weird kind of way. That has left me very silent, though. I won't be silent for long in the blog. I'm sure I'll be posting. I need to get back into gear. I want to circle back on Letterboxd because I just had an idea. Any of our listeners that are on Letterboxd, I invite you to become my friend or like me or follow me or whatever it is you do. I am on it as The Reaction Shot. That is the name of my blog that is in transition from going from Wix to WordPress. But anyway, I I will add real quick that I'm on there as Monster Movie Kid. And the logo is actually, I use the Classic Horrors Club podcast logo as my logo. That's copyright protected. Did you get permission? (laughs) Let, let me explain. I, I actually tried doing my Monster Movie Kid logo and it didn't like it because I think it wasn't sized right. And I thought, oh, the logo, I can get that real quick. I know I'm, I'm violating copyright laws, but I also figured that would kind of, if people saw that, that would tie it into the podcast. Yeah, so. absolutely. So join us. I log everything I watch. I don't always review or rate it right away. But anything I do put on my blog, I go back and rate, write a little summary and click a link to the review on my blog. Theoretically, it's a a social network for movie lovers. And, you know, when you post that you saw something and someone invariably asks, how did you like it? You know, this is a way you could just go to my page. You can see what I've watched and see how I liked it. You know, cut out that nasty personal interaction, you know, that's, <laughs> let's wrap up then. And Rich, what are, what are we talking about next time? Well, you know, we sat down this past week and we, we talked about what we've got coming up. Someone's having a birthday and it's not me. Jeff picked out one of the ideas that we had on the list. I kind of came up with some ideas and threw them to Jeff And so next month, we are going to spend some time with the ladies. We are going to uh, take a look at two films from 1971, one of which we just mentioned, or Jeff just mentioned, Countess Dracula and Lady Frankenstein for next month. If you have nothing else, Richard, let's call this meeting to a close. We are going to go out with a song, not from the movie Meteor, but called Meteor. It's by The Architects, and it's from their album, For Those That Wish to Exist. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Thank you to our correspondents. We will see you on the YouTube channel and talk to you next month. Take care, everyone.